Yeah, the other thing is, like, I go, I go directly from here to work. The people that I'm engaging with are clueless about what's what. Mm. I'm, there's no context yeah. for them, right? So, like, I can I can leave here after having a great interview with Spud, and then like go to work and be like, dude, we just had this great interview with this guy Spud Murphy, and and like this is some of the things he was talking about. And everybody's like, cool, man. Did you uh, did you order Pepsi this week? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll get on that. Friends, the show you're about to hear may contain coarse language, progressive attitudes about scale modeling, and in-depth discussion of technique and concept. If this is not your thing, then on your bike. Otherwise, please enjoy today's show while at the bench, on the drive to work, or while enjoying an adult beverage. All right, folks, welcome aboard. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He's obviously had his coffee this morning. All right, folks, welcome to episode 35 of the Sprue Cutters Union. Yay! I am joined. Interrupt you then. Just, oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is going to be so good. This oh, is going to be great. Sorry, I'll, I'll just mute myself. Go on. Yeah, great. Uh, I'm joined by Chris Meddings, who's already interrupted to, to let us know that he's here, and uh, <laughs> Will Patterson, who interrupted earlier. <laughs> What's up, peckerheads? So professional. <laughs> Just peckering as usual. You could tell we don't script this. Yeah, clearly. We don't need no fucking scripts. As long as we got coffee and attitude, we're good. I, I should have made coffee. Oh well. Uh, folks, we are we're gonna have an interview with uh, the fantastic uh, John Murphy, Spud Murphy, later on today. We're gonna talk about his tenure uh, editing magazines, his and dirt bikes. And dirt bikes. No, no, just no, just, just. Stop. Is that the equivalent of your Australian accent? It is. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, we got Spud coming on later. He is. Uh, it's a great interview with him. Um, it was fun to talk to him about some of the challenges. Uh, in transitioning from 135th scale armor to 116th scale armor, which he's uh, become a fan of. Uh, and he's just an all-around entertaining guy. And uh, and if you ever see him out in public, buy him a drink and let him tell you some stories because he's got some oh, stuff man. that wouldn't make it on the podcast. He is. He's, he's a good broadcast. storyteller. Yeah, good yep. storyteller. All right, so let's start off with Chris. Chris, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been a busy bee this week. I finished... Um, as as we know from the thing I stuck on the front of the last episode, I finished laying out and um, I don't know whatever you call it finishing the models for Ukraine Volume Two. I sent that to the printer, and now I'm in the eye of the storm, which is like two three weeks while they're printing it, and I don't have to do anything with it before it arrives, and I have to post hundreds of bloody things and fill up my lounge again like last time. So um, while that's happening, I'm actually at the bench, and I've done a little bit on the seals model Yay Armor which is almost as difficult to build it is to say, uh, which is lovely. Little one 500 scale um, Japanese auxiliary cruiser from the Russo-Japanese war. I also got my uh, SP designs resin stuff through from Ukraine, which is brilliant. Two 72nd kits. So I popped online at uh, their conversions and bought an ICM 172nd BTR-60 and I've started converting that to the what's it called a 1v18 1v19 artillery command vehicle which is interesting because the icm kit is 
badly cast like a bad resin kit and the sp designs kit is really well cast so it's like complete rule reversal of what they should be like because <laughs> everyone knows the plastic kit should be great and the resin should be a bit eh, but it's the other way around so eh, what are you gonna do so yeah that's fun but um i just kind of fiddling with it and i've been working on some scratch stuff for a book i'm doing for someone else so that's me this week i have questions yeah. i have questions mm-hmm. So how many pages is the new Ukraine book going to be? Oh, hang on. I'll do the spiel. Let me wind up. <laughs> 120 <laughs> pages, 23 authors in 11 countries. Uh, there is aircraft, armor, ships, and figures. We've even got someone this time from Ukraine. Now, you people might ask, why aren't they all from Ukraine? I kind of figured people were either busy fighting or or getting bombed so i didn't want to like say to a bunch yeah, of people try you know, try not try not to yeah. die hey could you, you pause with the, with the yeah could you pause the try not to die and make a model for my book yeah yeah mm-hmm. i figure i'd let them let them fight and uh would send them the money from the book instead so yeah and it's doing well it's already sold more than enough to pay for itself and raised about 1600 so far well, I just I you you answered all my questions because I, you know I've listened to your list of everybody who's involved, feeling ashamed that I was that I didn't have the bandwidth to be, but dude, like the list of amazing model makers who are not in there is way shorter than the ones who are. It, it's like I was thinking it had to be a couple dozen. That is, has anybody ever compiled that uh, much? of a who's who of great model makers i don't know i mean i think it's a pretty um, it's the first time i've managed to get calvin tan to write for me so <laughs> you know that's, that's pretty that's, awesome yeah that's that's pretty cool that's <laughs> sure you should see the shit oh ah i meant to, that's just something i meant to bring up today actually i got a really great tip from his article as well um before he paints his figures he cleans them and then he sprays them with matte varnish and that gives something for the paint to stick to clear matte varnish mm-hmm. and so he doesn't really need to prime he just paints on top of that but it lets him build it up exactly how he wants and where he wants and everything else but because it's matte it gives it a key and also it's kind of a porous surface for the paint to soak into the acrylic he's using water-based acrylic well he's using yeah he's using the clear to do one of the functions that a primer yeah. is supposed to do and he didn't really you know, it doesn't really need, I mean, with figures, you don't really need all of the functions of a good primer because you're not doing much mm. body work, at least you hope not. So yes, I think that's why some people, you know, think that Vallejo surface primer is good because all they use it for is figures. So, you know, He uses Mr. Uh, Color, um, you know, Gunz, uh, like Gunze. Like Gunze. No, he uses the. St- I think he might use the spray, but it's the, the UV cut or something. He uses one of those. I mean, oh, he uses it, it in the spray, spray can. Use the uh, one in the spray can. Maybe not actually. Maybe I just assume that reading it. But you can get it in the pot, or you can get it from the spray can, can't you? But yeah. the point is, it's lacquer, so it bites yep. the plastic. And one of the problems you can get painting figures is if you actually rub it, you take the paint off with water-based acrylics, and because yeah. he's painting yes. on that, it doesn't rub off. Mm-hmm. So, and also he makes like. 135th scale salami slices by painting onto a metal sheet and then peeling it off. Incredible stuff. Oh, so he's actually just using the thickness of the paint itself as the salami. I can't remember what he uses. There might be some gloss in it or something, but he, he like paints salami and then peels it off and uses that as a salami. It's just incredible. You've got to read the article. Well, I will because I ordered the book. 
yeah the only thing he doesn't talk about is how he painted the tattoo which is a bit of a shame but other than that it's um oh yeah how to hand paint digital camo and it's like a really it's one of those a lot of times people go how to draw the you know like how to draw the horse draw the outline yeah. draw the rest yeah. of the fucking horse <laughs> and you pick up this article it's like well that's no fucking use to you know either that or oh, okay so the key to this technique is being incredibly skilled well i'm fucked then but you know, it, it's quite a simple, easy to follow how to paint digital camo on clothes. And I thought, actually, that's I look at that and think I could do that. And it's great, you know, when you you get one of those that something you're scared of and immediately think, oh, I, I reckon I could do that if I tried. Probably not. Probably you get the paintbrush on it and it's like, oh, fuck it, fucking Calvin Town. But, you well, know. <laughs> you're not gonna. You're not again. You're not gonna be good at it the first time you do it. So that's the key going in to understand is like. This is going to take some practice, but when somebody lays it out in an approachable way where you understand what you're supposed to be doing, it yeah. makes that journey shorter. You know, you're not have to you're not having to figure out the the how to so much as just develop the skill. Half the time, the, the, one of the big things that puts me off trying these things, I just don't really know where to start. And at least when someone gives mm-hmm. you that, you got a good yeah. idea of where you can start. So. Yeah. But this, yeah, Paolo Portuese did a really nice KI-51 Sonya in there, which is also my favourite um, front page layouts I've ever done. Yeah, that's the, a good layout. The rises, we'll I like it. that one. And uh, old Jean, our friend Jean-Bernard Andre with a really nice one, which yeah. is which Peter Russia might be a bit annoyed about because it's got bells in it. <laughs> I think Peter <laughs> Russia was talking about that one. <laughs> so, yeah, really great. Um I would have asked you too, but I did also want a lot of new people in this one. So, um, I, you know, I did ask you, but I might have twisted your arm if it wasn't for the fact I was always trying to trying to get new people in from the last book. So, uh, yeah, hopefully people. I just it was just it, it it was just bad timing for me. I just, yeah. I mean, I wanted to help, but I just didn't have. I mean, I had stuff that I was working on, and I, you know, I just know better than to put myself on a deadline. Mm-hmm. It, I just, you know. Yeah, same. I mean, I'm happy that there there's fresh content in there and fresh, fresh models. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, what have you been up to? Well, uh, let's see. So I got the tiny Stang, the Arma Stang for the Musaru Cup, to a place where I felt like I could just stop and catch my breath, which was to get it where it's basically all ready to start painting, to start the fun part. And it was a lot of fussing. I have to say a lot more fussing than I expected. And I know I'm a baby, but yes, all that tiny, tiny fussing was fussy and it made me fussy. And (laughs) so I was glad to just get to a point where I felt like I could take a break it's a good kit. I don't, you know, I, I don't think that it has quality issues per se. I think that it has a couple of challenges that some of us have uncovered along the way. And those are not too surprising for two reasons. One, I mean, look, these guys are pretty new to the game and you know, you've seen, I mean, it's taken, it's taken the folks at Tamiya decades to get to where they can do the magic that they do. And we can sort of see the progression with Edward over the last decade. So, you know, and and I maintain that that as product development engineering goes, that scale model kits are one of the more challenging things that you could do in the injection molding sphere. So, you know, that, that it is what it is. 
Um, but I also, <laughs> you know, this being my first experience at, at Braille scale, the, the reality is that errors as a percentage are much greater the smaller it is. I mean, that's obvious math. Like, you know, some of us have seen a, a bit of a step between the, the clear part that, that makes up the windshield and the panels immediately in front of it, which is great engineering, by the way. Every model kit company should do that, um, you know, rather than just making the windscreen a, mm. a piece by itself, where then you have to deal with the joint at the base of the windscreen. And that's always a shit show. Um, so it, it, great engineering, but some of us have discovered a little bit of a step between the front of that piece and the rest of the nose. And it varies. It's mostly, you know, of order, like maybe, uh, maybe uh half, uh, maybe a quarter of a millimeter, uh, trying to do the metric math in my head. Um, mine though was much, much larger. It was closer to a full millimeter. Um, and I'm still baffled as to why, I mean, I went through all the diagnostics and there, you know, there are folks who were saying, oh, well, it's this uh, little bit of mold parting line mold witness that's on the edges of the cockpit opening. And it's baffling to me how model makers will just completely ignore obvious physical evidence in favor of what seems like the easy explanation. Cause like I had mine right there and that flash or it's not even flash. It's just a little tiny Ridge was like 0.1 millimeters tall. And the step that I had was like 10 times that much. It's like, no, <laughs> that does not, that does not explain it. And I still don't know what the explanation is in fact, because it was driving me so crazy and I spent so much effort fixing it that I bought another kit. Um, and I ordered one. I want to throw a shout out to the folks at Lionheart Hobby down in Austin, Texas. Um, I, I, I knew that they had some because Matt McDougal had gotten uh, his kit from those folks. So I just, you know, I figured, hey, they're close by. I can get one pretty quick because I wanted a sanity check, right? I wanted to get one out of the box, uh, just tape it together without the instrument panel and the, and the dashboard in there, because there's some people felt like that's what caused it because that fits underneath that clear part, which was a very valid thing to think. I mean, that's, you know, I thought, I thought the same thing myself. And so, and sure enough in the, in the kit that I bought and put together, whether it had the instrument panel in there or not, it had a very small step still there, but very much smaller than the one I had. So I I'm still baffled. I, I still don't get it. Don't even, I can't even explain it. Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I did a, I did a, uh, 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 I've done a pretty thorough analysis of it on video that I haven't published yet, but it's just one of those mysteries and probably never get solved. But one thing that I really appreciate is that Greg has been part of that conversation and those guys are open. Like he told me, yeah, we talked about it at our morning meeting last, you know, last week. And, uh, that kind of interaction again, you know, is just really cool. It's really good to see that. So anyway, I got that thing up to the point where I'm feel like it's ready for paint and I've set it aside and I spent the weekend painting my little astronaut, um, that I've had. It's uh, that thing's cute. 
He is right, right. That's a that's a a, a sculpt from Roman Laplatte. I think he sculpted it. Um, he he's run um, a contest through his uh, Instagram page, and he ultimately, um, I mean, he's painted tons of them, and and they normally print about. Shit, I don't think they're 15 millimeters tall. They're tiny. And you can buy. He's, he made the STL files available for sale on his Etsy shop um, a few months ago. And I immediately had to get one because I just think they're so cool. And when I printed it out, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not paying this thing's the size of my fucking thumbnail. I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's the size of a beast dick. It is, literally. And so I scaled it up like six times. And so now it's about two inches tall. And that was the right size to be cool and fun. So I I painted that over the weekend. I just, I kind of set an arbitrary goal for myself to see if I could paint the whole thing and get to a, you know, mostly done point. And it is mostly done. Uh, So, and that was fun. It's a cute little thing. So I'm going to make a little base for it. And uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it. So the last time I looked, uh, it may have changed. You may have posted an update, but have you done anything with the the glass face of the the helmet? Yeah, not not yet, not yet. Um, I am going to my plan anyway is to brush Molotow ink in there mm-hmm. to get that chrome finish on the visor. And then because Molotow ink is, I mean, it never hardens. If you even look at it funny, a year later, it will still get a fingerprint in it. So my plan is to, um, you can you can clear coat it with an acrylic clear. So I'm going to mix up some magic wash with maybe a bit of a, a yellow tint to maybe give it that gold, you know, spacesuit visor look. And... Uh, Hopefully that'll all work. Well, we'll see. Do you not be really fun? What? Paint the reflection of you like fisheye of you painting it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's something Calvin Tan would do, not something that Will Patterson would even consider. Calvin Tan doing. would probably paint the guy's head inside and make he probably it perfect would. Trump lawyer, whatever it's called. Yeah. You know? yeah, he'd probably paint the reflection of the camera taking the picture with another reflection inside the reflected camera lens. He will now. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of things that you mentioned, you know, on the last episode, I mentioned that I had spent some time punching the Zeus fasteners in the nose of the tiny Stang. Uh Yeah. They're straight now. You yeah, Tracy immediately pulled up the photo and was like, "Yeah, are these supposed to be crooked as fuck?" And no, paraphrasing, but yeah. they were. Yeah, not. the way you said it was like so innocent. Are they? Are they kind of supposed to be straight? Yeah. No, <laughs> I knew, I knew. I mean, but but I was like, I was curious to see if anybody else would notice because that was going to determine how hard I worked to fix it. Like, I just get away with it. Yeah, if I if I can sneak this if I can if I can sneak this by these guys, I'm all good. Which of course was pure foolishness. And and I you said there were only three of them I had to fix. Yeah, no, I ended up fixing about about uh, ten of them. And one of them, I that there was just one particular one that I had to redo like four or five times because it just would not come out right. 
So yeah, thanks for that, but hey, it had to be done. You're the Hash- one that did him crooked. Hashtag fix You're that right. shit. Unfuck <laughs> your shit. Hey, that's exactly right. I mean, it is. You know, we're playing. We're playing to win. So, got to do it. Before we uh, go any further, because uh, we've mentioned Calvin Tan a couple of times, if people haven't heard it, I just want to refer you to an amazing interview he did with Barry and Jim on small subjects. Go and look that up because it's a really yeah. great interview. That was a good one. Yep, very cool. Good stuff. What about you, Hancock? What are you up to? Um, well, I've been battling a little bit of a cold, um, which kept me away from the bench for a little while. I can't recall what I where where my progress was. The last time we talked, um, I have been weathering the little uh, Panzer One Bethel's wagon. Um, got it painted, got the hairspray chipping done, got the markings painted on, which I thought I had lost. Uh, Barry Beidegger had made me some masks, um, and I thought I'd lost those. Found those guys, uh, used those. They look great. A couple of touch-ups to do on that. Um and then got started with the oils, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a spot uh, <laughs> where it happens every once in a while to, to all of us, but it's it's super annoying when when you're in the middle of a process and you have to stop what you're doing and attend to real life, but you haven't pulled it all back together yet. You know, mm. like I feel like. I'm at the point of the weathering where I had some really insanely cool stuff that was making me real happy. And then as I'm working on the dirt and dust layers, I'm kind of covering some of that up that needs to be go back and I need to go back and, and attend to that again. But where I am right now, it's covered up and I keep going back and looking at the model and thinking, Oh, I need like, I need an hour. Just give me an hour and let me get it to like a spot where get to the next safe point. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, basically, um, hit Command S, save that bitch. Um, and then the Panther, I've got. Uh, I I cobbled the engine and engine bay from uh, an old CMK set for the Tamiya Tiger into the Dragon. Uh, juiced up the engine with some cables and wires and things, which I'm pretty happy with. Um, and I pulled one of those, uh, as we'll find out later, uh, you know, uh, we, we talked to Spud about this, about how, and it probably comes from uh, his years working on magazines where you, you just have to get the shit done. You can't wait for the right bottle of paint with the right label on it to arrive so you can get, you know, complete that next step. Spud's really good about getting a couple of jars of things that he needs and, and mixing it together until he gets the color he wants. So he can just kind of vamoose and keep going. Um, I did that with the, uh, the red oxide. I didn't have any red oxide, so I had to mix some up and I grabbed some, uh, to me, a, a whole Brown and some to me, a clear red mm. and pulled out a pretty nice little, um, uh, red oxide and it kept that project moving you know do you know what that whole red and clear red is my recipe for um the bottom of japanese ships it should be whole red but to me it's they mixed it for that for the bottom of japanese ships to me it's not quite got enough red in it so a bit of clear red in it 
those clear colors are, are good for shading too. Uh, MRP mm. makes, makes a bunch of clears. And I found like on Spaceman Spiff's coveralls that are basically orange, that their clear orange was a great shading for areas that I wanted to be just a little more intense. Yeah. And you can always mix it with like a little smoke and, and mm-hmm. give yourself like a, a translucent, but slightly darker color. Ammo of MIG brought out some acrylic versions called shaders, and they're not as much fun. They don't feather as well. They they're a bit sort of gummy when they're on, and um, yeah. stick with the stick with the uh, lacquers and uh, Tamiya. I reckon. I'm yeah. convinced those shader things are just ink. Um, cleaned all my airbrushes because whenever I was trying to spray that whole red, that red oxide, I realized pull an airbrush out, put it in there, and it's all gummed up. And like, okay, well, fuck it. <laughs> dump it out, clean, give, give it a quick clean, pull the next airbrush out, dump it in there. It took me, through, it was the third airbrush that I grabbed before I had one that wasn't all gummed up. So. You can see my airbrush, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> my airbrush is about that. So I did spend some time with some lacquer thinner and just like giving them a good cleaning and getting them all ungummed. And um, I was determined not to let that slow me down. So I used, almost every airbrush I have before I found one that, that worked. Um, I thought I was airbrush lazy. Oh uh, yeah. So <laughs> they've, they've been needing a good uh, degunking and they got it. Um, They're like yeah, a good lock. It. They need to be seasoned. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I run them till they spray funny, but that I, I just use one for almost all my work. So I have to stop occasionally and do that. The thing about lacquers and acrylic based paints is you can kind of get away with that for a long time, but when they fuck up, they really fuck up and they really need a good clean. Then. Well, lacquers will, if you, if you spray almost all lacquers, like I do, you can go, mm. I mean, I fuck, I don't do a full field strip, but maybe two or three times a year. Nope. Yeah, more for me. Yeah. And I feel like some, sometimes it's good if you're, spraying acrylic and spraying lacquer and things like that to have a couple of airbrushes that are you know already acclimated to those chemicals so you don't get any surprises um (laughs) fish eyes and shit yeah (laughs) i solved that problem by never spraying acrylics yeah honestly i think aqua gloss is the only acrylic i ever spray anymore Metallics are the one that piss me off because no matter how much you strip that airbrush down and clean it afterwards, you'll spray <laughs> something after it and you'll get fucking sparkles. Yeah. Yep. yep. Especially, yeah, dark color. It's a guarantee. Well, my problem is that I, and, until I find a, a different recipe for Panzer Gray that I like, I, I'm kind of stuck making the mission models work. But like, that, it's, it's, they're, their Panzer Grey is beautiful, and then I uh, I cut it with um, their translucent dust, or their transparent dust, and it it lightens it without changing the color. You know, it doesn't create any yeah. kind of weird blueness. It's just kind of a lighter gray that works um, that works really well. So I don't I understand why it's so hard. It's basically just light blue, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're painting Warhammer miniatures, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Look, I'm plenty wound up about plenty of shit. You don't need to try to I get should, me wound yeah, up about yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, you're already pretty salty. I shouldn't I shouldn't be pushing I shouldn't be poking the bear. Yeah. 
Let's have an ad break there, hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, let's get on to some burrs. What's up, gangsters? Let's take a second to talk about the latest products from Anna's. Tom is constantly working to give you the best tools and details for your precision modeling needs. And now he has sets of spear precision tweezers for tasks like applying those tiny Anna's decals or his super cool tiny resin switches, PE parts, whatever you need. They're made in high-grade stainless steel and have an extra sharp needle tip. Tom has also introduced a high-quality synthetic paintbrush line. They're called Martisan Kolinsky, and they're excellent for detail work. They've got high elasticity, stability, and fine tips. The triangular wooden brush handles are also nice because they're a lot more comfortable to hold than the traditional small round brush handle. They're available in three sizes, 20-0, and 5 I've got a set of them, and I'm always finding new uses for them. And of course, there's always his range of the aforementioned resin detail parts, decals, and the 3D print files that you can download and print on your own 3D printer. So head on over to Aniz, that's A-N-Y-Z dot I-O to see what Tom has for you to make your own perfect pieces. Burrs under my saddle. Burrs are rich in my butt. Burrs under my saddle. There's one wedged under my nut. Uh, I've got two burrs. I've got two burrs, believe it or not. The guy who never has a burr under one his under saddle. Each yeah, what is even going on right now? I mean, this is this is this is like in SMCG, if you get penalized by Dukes, you really fucked up. So I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. Wait, did I get penalized by Dukes? No, I'm saying as a that's the that's the royal you. I'm just saying because Matt is so chill and like Oh yeah. My, you know, he I mean so he, he got pre- you're right. He pretty much never issues a penalty in there. So if you get one from him, you fucking earned it. Uh, my first one's it's it's just minor. It's economics. We've been through it before, but just people moaning about the cost of things and and how you know how border models is gouging everybody. Oh with, yeah, I saw that one with the 150% price increase over what Wingnut Wings was going to release the, the Lancaster at. Wingnut like, Wings, the business that went out of business. Also, the, <laughs> the business that created it. Like, of course, it's basic economics. They've sold it to someone else. They sold it for enough money that they're making a profit by selling off these molds and everything. So, Well, the story goes they didn't pay for the molds. And the mm. company that made for the made the molds was like, we want our money, we want our money, we want our money. And like any company anywhere that makes something for someone else, you always have it in the contract that until payment is made, it remains the property of the manufacturer, you know, of the company that's tooled it or whatever. And when I get a book printed, it says at the bottom of the um, terms of business that I sign when I pay for the book, that it remains the property of the printer until I pay for it. Mm, of course. And... The story goes, Wingnut Wings never paid for their tool. 
so the toolmaker sold it for yeah. whatever the toolmaker decided they wanted to sell it for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. They, set the now, price, they right? didn't look. They yeah. didn't look at what Wingnut Wings was going to charge per model for this kit. They no, they looked at their cost. They looked at their cost. And and then they sold it for enough money that they made a profit off of the work that they had done because that's a capitalist move, man. Every transaction you go through in life, you're buying something from someone who has marked it up from the person that they bought it from. And don't think for a minute that just because it happened in China that they're not being capitalist about it. Oh, for sure. They, they have to make a profit. They have to yeah. make a profit. The, the people who work for that tooling company don't work for free. The, the the electricity doesn't stay on in that Chinese tooling plant for free. Like you have, as a business, you have to make money in order to pay your employees and keep the lights on. And nobody's ever started a business to not fucking make money because it's a pain in the ass. It's a bigger pain in the ass than just about anything else in the world. And if you're not making money off of it, why the fuck would you do it? You yeah. wouldn't. You absolutely yeah. wouldn't. So you've got a tool maker who has decided on a cost that has nothing to do with the wing nut wings, you know, eat retail price that they were talking about. And then they've sold it to border and border is another company that has to make a profit. So whatever they paid for those, the tool, then they're going to increase the cost of the model so that they're making a profit. The more steps away you get from the center, the more money you're paying because everybody is adding their own little slice to the cost. Well, and the key, the, the, yeah, it's not, it's, it's fucking stupid. The, and the key difference is, is that the tool maker isn't faced with amortizing it. They, they got their money. They're done. They're paid out on making that tool. But border now has to figure out how many kits they're going to have to sell to pay for that tooling and all the other shit that goes along with, with, with bringing a model kit to market. And let, let's be honest, a one thirty second scale Lancaster is not going to sell like hotcakes. I mean, so they're going to pile a lot of per unit cost for the tooling onto each one that they sell. So yeah, it's going to cost 800 bucks. Get over it. Or don't buy it. Yeah. No, you're not owed the price that Wingnut Wings was advertising it as. You're not. That's that is not something you're owed. Yeah, and you're not getting subsidized by a billionaire enthusiast. So, hey. right, you've got a, you've got a company that's determined. Okay, we're not going to sell a lot of these. So, let's say we sell a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, or a thousand, whatever the number is that they determine. We want to make our money back after we've sold a thousand of these. Yep, that's that's their right. Probably what that's they... their business. Mm-hmm. probably what the key issue for them is that how quickly they needed the return on it as well. If they're a small company and they need the capital to work on something else, and I imagine it was a huge capital outlay for a small company, yep. then they want to recover that money as quick as possible. Absolutely. So they go for low volume, high price over yep. high volume, low price. That's a great point. I mean, if you're Tamia and you spend a million dollars on tooling, you got a shit ton of other things to keep the lights turned on for you while you pay for the tooling over the next 10 or 15 years. It's well, not they're big... still selling kits, kits from 30 years ago. That's exactly. how they look at the life of a mall. Exactly. It's not a big deal. So, so you have, you know, those folks have like an accounting strategy that's based on their cost of capital and the time that they want, you know, to get that, to get the return on capital. But if you're a tiny little company and you've only got a dozen products out there, you got to do it faster. 
it, I mean, this is the business shit that these guys on Facebook don't have any clue about. I mean, we're spitballing about the business here, but uh, we don't know any more than anyone else does. This is basic business. Yeah, but no one does. So how can you say it's gouging if you don't? Absolutely yeah, exactly. Know? We don't know the specific numbers, and that's why you can't yeah. say it's gouging. But the principles that we're talking about apply whether mm. you're selling, you know, pepperoni and pizza dough or vacuum cleaners or model kits. Well, the bottom line is that was all explained on this Facebook post and the original poster didn't like it and he was a moderator, so he deleted it. He deleted all those comments. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and, oh, and unfriended me. What Ooh. the fuck? Ooh. Which group? Ooh. I gotta know. I'll tell you Come later. on. Oh, come on. Let's Let's have a little drama. Let's have a little Facebook drama. I think it's pretty easy to figure out considering the context of what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate because that gets into, I think that, you know, moderating according to shit you just don't want to hear is way worse than people being silly about price gouging. And it's not like somebody was being like, no one was being an asshole. Like there was nobody like you're so fucking stupid. You don't understand this. Blah blah blah. It's just like, well, it's not price gouging because this is the way business works. Like, just trying to explain like how border is has the right to charge whatever they want, and apparently it just wasn't. You know, the, the economics lesson wasn't what the post was about. Apparently, is the is what I heard. It's just quite funny because you know they start with an economics lesson, and when you carry on with the economics lesson suddenly economics isn't what the post is about <laughs> it was when they said it but not when you said it <laughs> now it's just about mobile goalposts right i mean they only posted to 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 hear the hallelujah chorus behind them mm -hmm. and yeah. when and when somebody sang a different tune well i'm gonna gonna delete all that content and i'm gonna unfriend you and it's like <laughs> man, what the, the fuck, fuck up. i mean that's that's weak that, that's really weak. And, they, you know, we could blow this up into an entire three-hour podcast about the state of the world right now. Yeah, you can edit it. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, just, it's not just happening on Facebook model-making groups, but it is, you know, it, that, 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 that's right there in our face. And, and that's going to, I think, going to be kind of the theme today. All right, so that's the burr under your left nut. What about under your right nut? <laughs> God damn it. Now I have a visual I can't get rid of. <laughs> well, it, it's part and parcel of the same thing. It's, it's being told what you're allowed to discuss and what you're not allowed to discuss, you know? Yeah. It's being yeah. shut down for having a, a different opinion or a contrary opinion or having something to say and then being shut down by people that don't want to hear it. Like, As opposed to just being shut down for being an asshole. Period. Right, right. There's Which is no, the like, only valid reason. I agree. I agree. And I have the 100% oh, have the capacity to be the biggest asshole you've ever met in your life. I absolutely do. It takes a lot to get me to that point. But when you get me to that point, you're not going to fucking forget it. But that's not <laughs> that's not the case. Like these are these are not situations where anybody was being an asshole. They're just situations where you're trying to like show other people like a different viewpoint or like 
or to be like, hey, man, this is kind of shitty. Why are you doing this? And then they're like, well, you don't have any fucking sense of humor. It's just a joke. You're a dickhead, you know? So the, the other burr under my saddle is the, the fucking, you know, we're recording this a day after Halloween. So on Halloween, there were all these little memes floating around. And one of them was the rivet counter meme. The, the the one with the costume, right? Yeah. Yeah, that this year's uh, meme format, isn't it? The, the costume packet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and some of those are legit hilarious. Yeah, they are, and they're good fun. But at the same time, like, the whole rivet counter thing, it just needs to fucking stop. You know? Like, the people who are using that as an insult, and contrary to what that one guy on that fucking one page had to say, like, it is almost always used as an insult. Almost, yeah. yeah. Almost it, it, it is. It is, yeah. It's rarely anything but that. And I mean, I'll just say it. It, it, it seems to mostly come from butthurt casuals who just don't like the fact that somebody was kind enough to provide them a specific bit of information. I mean, we've talked about it before when we talk about feedback. If somebody says, "Hey, those things were a different color," that's not bullying, home slice. That's just information, you know, calm the fuck down. But, you know, that's where this trope of the, you know, rivet counter bully comes from. I mean, you see it all the time. The thing that annoys me about it, you you do get people that pop up and say, oh, I had a guy come up to me at a show and blah, 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 blah. But what this trope is about, it's not even really about anyone's experience. It's just someone comes up with it and it's just purely for the purposes of everyone going yuck yuck <laughs> look at those people over there that we don't like mm-hmm. and, you know and kind of not even real people just sort of these these this amorphous blob of oh, rivet counters it, yeah i mean it's the other thing is they're not insulting the people that they think they're insulting mm. they're insulting skilled modelers they're they're basically insulting i don't know three quarters of the people that we've had as guests on this podcast. Yeah. Like, I mean, David Parker, Fabio Sacchi, Alex Clark, uh, uh, Darren Thompson. Like you go through the list of the people that we've had as guests on this podcast. These are serious model makers who strive for accuracy, who do incredible work. John Chung, everybody drools all over his work. And then, they throw the same people who are like, ha rivet counters, ha ha ha. Like, he's fucking restriving an entire space shuttle. Like, he's a rivet counter. There's no pejorative here. It's <laughs> he like, has counted. He has counted more rivets than all of us put together. The the people who are actual rivet counters are more skilled than any of the people throwing this meme around. I mean, a couple of the things on this meme contents includes trivial knowledge of mechanical details. Yeah, this is exactly the kind of knowledge that we're talking about with these guys. They have a very deep knowledge of the mechanical details. Collection of obscure reference books. That's a good thing. I'm looking for a picture of it so that we can kind of dissect it. Okay, yeah. So here we go. Yeah, and I mean these are funny. It's a funny format. You know, here's the costume. Content includes before before the trivial knowledge of mechanical details was optimizer, flashlight pin, dental mirror can of soda. And I, you know, I firmly believe that good satire gives the person who's being satired room to laugh at themselves. And so far, 
we're all good. I don't really get the can of soda thing, but yeah, I mean, especially if you've ever been to a, an IPMS contest, you know, but they don't allow you to wear optimizers or, you know, anything like that as a, even as a judge, but you know, we can laugh at ourselves over, over that so far. Trivial knowledge of mechanical details. Yes, because we obsess over exactly which version of the Spitfire has that particular bump on the cowl. And yeah, okay, that's funny. I'm still laughing. But but yeah, but, but you're kind of getting in there. You know, a collection of obscure reference books. I think you're still okay. But it's that last one. That's, That's the killer. where the problem is. That's where the problem is. Superiority complex. I mean, really? Okay. Now you just, I mean, if, 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 if you'd quit before that, it's all in good fun. Now you're not only just insulting people, you're judging what you think people's motivations are. And that is always a problem. So a couple of things happen, you know, like I, I, I know that this meme made the rounds in several other pages. Um, oh, like every other page. Oh God, Jay, but, you couldn't move for the fucking thing. <laughs> so the only the only two interactions that I was even remotely involved in was the IPMS Malta page, and they posted it. Yeah. Um, and then David Parker was like, "Okay, goodbye IPMS Malta," and they're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what's going on?" And he was like, "Hey, man, this is this is really insulting." And this is a term that needs to go away. And and they were open to hearing both sides of the argument. And they were like, oh, we were kind of making fun of ourselves because we're always being accused of being rivet counters. Like, we didn't realize that this is, you know, a, kind of a, a way that people are being shitty to each other. And they took the post down. They're like, well, I'm so sorry. Like, I get it now. I understand. I, I see both sides of the coin. We're just going to take this post down. It was, like, and that was a that was a that was a respectable thing to do. I mean, absolutely, I, man. Somebody calls you out on like being shitty, and you're like, "Oh my god, I didn't know I was being shitty. I'm so sorry. I'm I, I get it now. I'll, I'll get rid of this." And then the other one was on the can classic. I can I throw something in here as, yeah. to help establish context? I saw the original. In fact, I think Chris, I think you posted the original, and I don't. I still. I think it mm. was in mediocre. I think it was in the mediocre model group. And the dude who originated it in the OP, he says, I could tag some of you guys in this, but I won't. Oh, no, and, I didn't see that one. I just saw a share. And of so, to, so to me, I was, I, to me, that already says, okay, this guy's trying to grind an axe. And they took it down in the mediocre group, which I, you know, I respected. Can I just jump in a second? When I first saw it, it really annoyed me, and because <laughs> because I'm a you know short tempered individual, I um, <laughs> I made my own version of uh, what I called Facebook Model Grouper. Now, <laughs> which, which was pretty. There funny. is one thing I'm quite proud of in it, in that I thought the uh, the mock up design was superior to some of the others. However, <laughs> the points really were, um, you know, I mean. I went through and did my own list. Yup, yup, rivet counter memes. I build for my approval, not yours. Rat sticker, hairy sticks, airfix t-shirt, rebel 1970s kits, overweathered hotkey, etc. And, you know, what I did really wasn't any different from the original. I was having a pop at people, you know, as well. So John Bonani called me out on that, on David Parker's meme. 
and uh, David Parker's post about it, and he was right. So I went back and I deleted them. So you know, if it's good for the goose, it's good. You know. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, that's. I mean, that, I didn't that, think it was quite the same thing because the rivet counter it, is a really long-standing trope. However, I could see how it would look that way, and I looked a bit sort of you know hypocritical. So yeah, I went back and deleted those. Well, look, that speaks to your character that you would that you would take ownership of that. But I'm not. I'm not really sure you totally need to fall on your sword over that because again going back to to what i said before sat good satire gives you room as the person who's being made fun of to to laugh at yourself it's like a roast and there's really nothing in here that we can't i mean look yeah we 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 harsh on airfix all the time but there's plenty of people who like to build them and that's totally cool you know that's that's a thing I, I mean, I, there, there's nothing in here that is a sort of stab at someone's character the way that superiority complex is. Am I making sense? Anyway, it was a best borderline, so I deleted it. I thought, you know, especially after IPMS Malta did, I thought that was really big of them to do that and to just say, Mayor Culpa, you know, it's upset people. We don't want to upset people. Um, it was a joke. Maybe it was, you know, not the best joke and they deleted it so good on them and i thought well if they're good big enough then so am i and again it's it's a it's a trope that needs to go away like it's you're not insulting who you think you're insulting you're yeah. you're insulting really talented people who strive really hard and in some ways you're even insulting yourself i mean you throw up a sherman that has the wrong style of bogeys or or whatever the wrong air filters for that particular model people are going to call you out on it right and those people are some of the people that would throw up a meme like this like you're you're in there too mm-hmm. you know like there was one modeler who was like hey relax it's just satire and i was like dude you are a rivet counter like you literally <laughs> are a rivet and i mean it in like the best way like i i, I said you can look it up and i'm not going to throw any name out there but i was like if i were to build this particular type of vehicle i know you have an immense knowledge of it and i would come to you to make sure that i was doing the job right like it's not an insult it shouldn't be an insult so come up with a different term for the people you're trying to insult there that, was one what... guy that said um said to you oh yeah i'm a rivet counter i don't see it as an insult and he just didn't seem to be getting the point Calling yourself a rivet counter, calling your rivet counter friends a rivet counter and saying, oh, yeah, you know your stuff, you're a rivet counter, is not the way this meme is used and not mm. the way the insult is used. It is used to put people down. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, t- it, Tony it, Bell replied and said, well, I mean, it, you can call yourself an asshole and it's not an insult, but when you call somebody else an asshole, it is. That was pretty much perfect demonstration yeah. of how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's really it. But, I mean, my beef came on, on the Plastic Model Dojo group, man. Like, they posted it, and three people took up the flag to, to say, like, hey, this is not cool. And it was yeah. the three of us. We were the only people who came the in there. most disagreeable <laughs> people on the internet. Troublemaking motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, according to Ian McCauley, the moderator, since we were the only three people who, who who took issue with this, it had to be directed at us. Ian says, God, there are a lot of humorless assholes in this hobby. <laughs> so thanks, Ian. Thanks for that. Thanks for calling us assholes. 
And I just yeah. like to thank uh, I'd like to thank the three people who gave that that comment a like: uh, T.J. Holler, Chris Wallace, and Mike Murphy. Thank you so much for agreeing with Ian that we're humorless assholes. Hey, there's a lot of clueless assholes around too, and 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 that that's kind of what I think this is about. Because look, here's the problem: people cannot seem to tell the difference between just actually being an asshole and being like dedicated to details and accuracy and being enthusiastic about it. Like when you take somebody like David Parker, that guy, I mean, his, his amount of knowledge about the specifics of a, you know, a jagged Panther that was manufactured on the 14th of June, 1943 in Schlummerswagen factory is unbelievable. You got guys like, I mean, like Evan McCallum, Panzermeister, that guy, his level of detail knowledge. I mean, these are guys who add value to the hobby for all of us. The fact that they're dedicated and passionate about those details is is great. And that they take their time to, to, to put that information out there, that's great. And I've never seen any of them be an asshole in the process at all, ever. That's a separate thing. That superiority complex, that's a separate thing. And it's just frustrating that people don't seem to be able to tell the difference. I mean, who, who's the guy who originally discovered that the the front third of a Mustang's wings were all puttied up and polished? Like, didn't that guy <laughs> didn't didn't that guy do something for the hobby? Didn't didn't he advance the ability people's ability to make a more accurate aircraft model? Tracy, Tracy, look, everybody knows it's the front forty percent. Seriously, do your research. I should, but I don't care about okay, Mustangs. See, so. Okay, see what I just did, but what I just did right there. Had that been in text, that's being an asshole. That's acting superior. Okay. Yeah, if I just you said, know each other, and you know, but, if you said to someone else, maybe point, I, yeah, know, I know, <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm using, I'm, I'm making a point here. If I had just said, yeah, hey, actually, it's Timothy O'Leary. He wrote a fantastic book, and it's really the front forty percent because they discovered blah blah blah. Okay, now I'm just giving you information. But there's, see, it seems like there's just guaranteed to be some delicate flower out there who's going to be like, oh, well, you're just, you know, I guess it's just, if it's not right, it's just not good enough for you. And you're the god of modeling. And you know, look, no, those people are the problem. Rewind a second. Timothy O'Leary, the acid guy. <laughs> yeah. I think I, got, yeah. I think I got his name right. Not the acid guy. It is O'Leary. <laughs> it may not be Timothy, no, but... Timothy oh, O'Leary oh, is definitely the acid guy. Oh, so he's all he popped is, up on but, acid and he's telling you the 40% front of the wing, is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. His, na- his name is... His last name is definitely O'Leary. And <laughs> it is. It, it was published in 2015. And if you love Mustangs and you want to learn about how they Who needs to do their research built, now? I know. <laughs> Educate yourself. That's one of my that that that's like that's one of my least favorite phrases on the internet. Is oh, educate yourself because yeah. it's all it is always always some condescending dipshit trying to make himself feel cool. It's ninety nine percent of the time used by uneducated people. <laughs> it's yeah, like classy. Exactly. No one says anything right. is classy unless they have no class. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that bums me out about this fucking meme and the way everybody. You know, not everybody, but the way certain people reacted to it was like, these are the same people who are like, build your model your way. As long as you're having fun, it's all good. Uh, And then you're going to like single out certain people and be like, ha ha, let's laugh at this guy. Cherry pick much? 
yeah. what I mean is build your model your way so long as it's the way I do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like you need to stop spouting that shit because nobody likes a hypocrite. Like if, if Look, you're going to throw shit around like that, if you're going to throw memes around like that, then then stop saying that, you know, you build a model the way you want it mm-hmm. and have fun because that's not what you're saying with this meme. You know, that's I should be silent at this point because of my hypocrisy. You should. <laughs> with my own meme. <laughs> Your reactionary yeah. meme, yeah, yeah, the, yeah no, it's yeah. Just, uh, it, no, I'm not going to give you that. It's just not the same. But, but Tracy, I, you, you, you said it. I mean, the most important thing is it just needs to go away. Because let me ask you, let, let me ask you and everybody else out there, what value is this trope serving? I mean, like here we are, over having this discussion. We've we've kind of had some you know, friction with some of our internet friends over it, which is regrettable. And it's, I mean, it's all caused by something that's really adding no value whatsoever. Like the guy who originally posted that was a fucking attention whore. It's just, it's the same as being a high school bully. Yeah. Like you're just being, you're being a fucking high school bully. You know, it's no different than like when I was growing up, you know, you could insult kids on the playground by calling them like the hard R or the hard F, you know, for no fucking reason whatsoever. And, and, and again, like Will said, it just needs to go away. And, and if you still feel the need to insult the type of person that this thing is geared towards, find a different name for them because it doesn't fit anymore. Like rivet counters are people who are advancing the hobby. They're people who are involved in developing kits you know, Tom Cockle is a rivet counter who helped develop Dragon's Panzer III and Panzer IV line. Like, Roddy Doyle was a rivet counter who wrote the ultimate book on the Panther. Like, yeah. you're insulting people who have who've done nothing but advance this hobby for all of us. Like, the people you're trying to insult, like, come up with a different word for it. Come up with a different term for it. Know it all. You know, whatever you want to call it. But but let's drop this rivet counter shit, man. The I honestly think people use it. They're not even thinking about rivet counters when they do it. They're just looking to get a cheap, easy laugh, a lot of likes in a Facebook post. And they know it's a reliable one. You can drop it and everyone will go, yuck, 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 yuck. And that's it. I think yeah. there's a lot of truth in that. I do. Yeah. But I also but I also feel like that that some of these guys I mean, look, hey, if you're going to call out somebody for a superiority complex, I'm going to call you out for an inferiority complex. Only yeah, there's a lot more. A lot ev- of that in it. Only there's a lot more evidence there. I, I, I have, I just, you know, like again, all of these guys who are super knowledgeable, I have never seen them be assholes about any of it. They just, like, you should be grateful that they take the time to share the information. They That's the bottom line. Get on with knowing stuff and sharing it. That's it. Yeah. Also, like, don't be shitty to other people in the hobby. Like, don't don't keep trying to fracture the hobby. That's like, the thing. We we have enough granular tribalism as it is. We don't need more, especially when it just has no value. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna rag on somebody for I'll go back to the Vallejo surface primer. If you're gonna rag on somebody for using Vallejo surface primer, that at least has some marginal educational value about the products we use, right? Because it can lead to a discussion about, okay, well, what's better? Why is it better? 
I mean, I can laugh That's about good. it because I've had bad experiences with it. So like, right. I, I get it. Like, <laughs> hey, I tried that stuff too, and it sucked. Yeah, it, exactly. it rubbed right off my figures. Shared misery. We can commiserate. And ultimately, you're not having a go at someone for bad decisions. You're helping them find something that's useful. Yeah, something good. Yeah, but that's but you made a. I mean, you nailed it. That's the problem is that that you know people take it personally. Like, oh, this guy thinks I'm an idiot because I you no, dude. I'm just telling you, it's not good, and and this is why you're having problems with it. I don't start thinking you're an idiot until you start saying, oh well, I've been using it for 50 years and I never had a problem. That's when. That's when the problem starts. That's the superiority complex at work. Yeah, I'm not calling you an idiot for using the same thing that I tried and failed with. Like, then we're both idiots, I guess. But, you know, you you ask around and you find a better alternative and and you get rid of the stuff that doesn't work. Or, you know, like most of us, you just put it in a drawer and keep it forever for fucking whatever reason. I I kept the bottle. I used it as a bottle for lacquer thinner for seven years until the cap finally fell apart. The bottle was great. The cap just disintegrated. Yeah, I mean, I've I've still got a lot of paint that I haven't touched in years and years and years. And I don't know why I still have it. Like, you know why I don't use it? Because it sucks. (laughs) But throwing away a full bottle of paint is just kind of, you can't do it, even though it's basically shit in a bottle. I mean, honestly, I'd rather like cull everything I have, put it on a table, make a picture of it and say, hey, if you live in the continental United States and you're willing to pay postage for this, I'll send all this to you. Uh, <laughs> there's something positive. There's some people I'd like to thank quickly, if you don't mind. Uh, I would like to thank uh, a bunch of podcasts who've been really good in supporting uh, the models from Ukraine book and have taken adverts. And I've, I've had conversations with them. They've been really good about it. So thank you to On The Bench scale model podcast small subjects plastic model dojo uh us thank you two guys uh model geeks and built sideways they've all been really good about supporting this project and i want to thank them all well it's a good effort and we're proud of you for you know for putting all the work that you've done into it and uh stand right there behind you man so yeah it's a huge humanitarian effort it's a huge amount of work it's a huge amount of organization that you've taken on yourself. We're very proud of you. I know you're very relieved to have it sent off to the printer and, you know, being able to get back and, and, you know, regardless of the humanitarian effort, you, you, this is your business and you need to do some work to make money for yourself. So, and not only am I glad that you've wrapped it up because I'm anxious to see it in print. I'm also glad that you can move on and, and start doing some, some work that'll get you some money in your pocket. Too. Yeah, making some money. Um, I, I must admit, I feel really awkward when people say things like that. Thank you, though, for saying those nice words. But I feel really awkward because I feel like there are people out there, you know what this hobby's like, who probably think I'm doing it for some sort of the attention or something. You know, there are people out there that think like that. And, and that's not what it's about. It's about the, the charity and everything else. But I really do appreciate you saying that. Thank you also you're you're british you don't do things for attention you don't want attention at all <laughs> i'm a modeler on social media of course i do things for attention but not this.
I'm Scott, the creator and owner of the Scale Modeler Supply, Australia's largest manufacturer of hobby paints. Our premium airbrush-ready acrylic backer paints are designed specifically for use on plastics, with a comprehensive range covering all popular modelling subjects including military, aircraft, rail, auto, sci-fi and more. And not only that, but we also have a wide selection of essential hobby tools and now, infinite colour and new range of water-based paints for miniatures. So to check out our range and to find your closest retailer, please visit our website at scalemodeler.com.au. So when quality matters, choose SMS Paints. Okay, so we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the uh, burrs under Tracy's nut bag. What do we have in the mail bag? Mail bag. Put your mail in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we got an email from uh, Scott. Uh, I don't know his surname. Um, he's not sent it, but there we go. From Scott. Uh, Mustang wing filling. Oh, I like this already. At least for me. <laughs> at least for me filling wings on a mustang is a long and very painful process i've now done it twice on the 132nd mustang i presume on two rather than done it twice on the same one if you ask me right now i say never again but maybe i lose my mind and decide to build another one in the future my latest effort went a bit better but still consumed lots of hours of filling sanding priming filling sanding priming until i got the most uh, got most of the panel lines so there you go another one backing you up he gets it and i you look it's it it is a ball ache it is a ball ache because like you have two choices you can fill with something that's easy to sand and do it like half a dozen times until the ghost seams are gone and you're done or you can fill it with something like super glue and deal with the differential sanding problem and i've just never found a perfect solution and i want because i'm a baby I want the kit makers to do it for me. Well, my original saying. my original contrariness was that like the kit makers should make the kit. But I'll tell you right now, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. It the kit makers should the people who just buy the kit at the store to build a cool Mustang, assemble it, paint it, hang it on the shelf, are not going to care whether the wing right. panels are filled or shit. not. So fill them. Yeah. So don't ever scribe them. Like just they should come. Yeah. Correct. And so if, 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 if I were saying anything different before, it was from being uninformed and contrary. I feel my position in the original discussion has been misrepresented. <laughs> <laughs> well, call your solicitor. Play, play some music. The dance is starting. <laughs> when people buy a kit and they don't know about the Mustang wings being filled or they don't know about like which panel lines go where, let's face it, there's lots of kits where the panel lines are wrong. Okay. Most people, they don't care that the panel lines are wrong, but they like having the detail on the kit. It looks nice mm. with the incised lines and the rivets. That's so my legit. point was there are a lot of people that are going to buy it and expect to see detail on it. And when there isn't any there, they're going to be upset because just because they want detail. Wah. So mm. Mm. if they want to bother yeah. counting yeah. the rivets, they'll find there aren't any because they've been filled. All right. But uh, so that's my point. It, that it's not that hard to fill and uh, more people uh, not more people that's that's um that's a pure guess that a lot of people would expect to see detail on it that was my point i'm prepared to admit i was wrong but you know 
I kind of think there's a bit of validity in that. Well, it's a, it's a philosophical thing, so it's hard to be wrong, but I contend that the kit maker could deal with that in the, you know, that blurb of information at the front of the instructions pretty easily. Nobody reads that shit. I guarantee, yeah, God, no, never. I guarantee, (laughs) though, the one thing we will never see is a kit with both wings in it. So stop even fucking asking. I know. Yeah, it'd be it'd be it'd be fantastic. Or if that was an if that was an, a legit aftermarket thing, but yeah, I you know I I I get it. I understand. Uh, but to me, if you're not like tuned in enough to look at the thing and go, oh, there's a bunch of really beautiful surface detail over here, and there's nothing more than some gun doors over here. Mm. Wow, there must be a reason for that. Look, I'm sorry. If you're that dumb, I don't have much sympathy for you. Anyway, could we just say that we've litigated this thing now and it's yeah. done? Fucking, it's out. Done. That's what we do. We over-litigate. We, we beat that horse until it's just a smoking pile. Yeah, smoking right. horse pile. <laughs> smoking pile of horse shit. All right, what's next then? So, Model Palooza 2022 Orlando IPMS judging and feedback. Clay Williams wrote to us. Good old Clay. I think Clay's a fantastic aircraft. He model. is. He is a good People dude. People should go and look at his World War One aircraft. Really talented dude. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. He brings the grunge. He does. And he does it really nice and in scale and realistic too. Uh, greetings, amigos. Given all the debate about IPMS scoring and judges' feedback on Spruker's Union and elsewhere, I thought you might find the following interesting. I participated in IPMS Orlando's Model Palooza show this weekend. Uh, a quick aside there. America, IPMS, I've got to give it to you. You have much better name for your model <laughs> In the UK, model. it's like the, the Wirral and Chilton model show or the, the, the I don't know, Arston and Crap, Crapley model show in america it's always like model fest 2090 (laughs) metal con it's always like really cool names and and in england it's like the the churchington town village model show i Uh, think they should hire you to do their advertising (laughs) it's like that guy more 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 bigger 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 that guy first they uh sorry two reasons i was particularly excited to do so first they use a gold silver bronze system uh second they publish a score sheet showing how judges scored your build in seven different categories entrants can see exactly where their kit excelled and where it might be improved Uh, it appears there were 523 builds across all categories so it's not on that scale show of course but it seems like a system that could be scaled up uh, and much appreciated by entrants, especially the score sheet aspect. And he's given us a link, which I'll put in the show notes to the score sheet. But if I just quickly click on that and have a look. I just love how detail-oriented Clay is. Like, he used yeah. bold and italics in his email, so we know what's yeah, really Yeah, it was important. formatted. His email was formatted. <laughs> he is clearly a graphic designer, graphic mm. artist. So it's like- it's like a spreadsheet and uh, that he's, he's sent us the link to. And there's a judge ID, so you can tell which judge did which thing. Contestant ID and entry ID, like you get in all shows, really. And then category one's construction, two landing gear, three alignment, four cockpit, uh, five paint finish, uh, six decals, seven details, and then an eighth category with any notes. And then there's a score in each category. So... Where you might not get information from that, particularly about what it was you did wrong, you'll know which area of the build you could improve on. 
And I think as a bare minimum, it's not a bad start. I think that's that's pretty good. And and I think that his point there sort of is that it gives the lie to the idea that it takes too long. Um, I think it's all about formatting and training. Um, somebody else, uh, there was another show a month or a couple months ago where somebody published a a feedback sheet. Wasn't that and, like MS Las Vegas? Uh, it might have been. Uh, but With our friend th- Joe. Uh, okay, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> and I looked at that thing, and I'm and the contention was okay. This was everybody was confused by this, and it took way too long. And when I read the thing, I was like, "Yeah, no shit." This looks like it was written by a drunken fifth grader. It's incomprehensible. <laughs> I mean, of course it took too long. So, yeah. I mean, careful what kind of evidence you use. Uh, the system that, that he sent us is actually very similar to the score sheets you get at IPMS UK at the Nationals, so it does work. I've judged, and those are the sheets we used. So there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff. Any more comments on that? No, no. No, I mean this is just a, it's a great email. I would encourage people to to yeah, go click the link, check out the scoring process. You know, this stuff is percolating. Um I think uh, our buddies over at the Geeks, aren't they involved in a new show and aren't they going the gold silver bronze route? Yes, they are. Right? We should have them on sometime to talk about it. But yeah, they with their show Paxcon. They they're going gold silver bronze. And I think it's a new show, isn't it? So they've got the opportunity to build it from the ground up, which is uh, some, yeah, there's yeah, we definitely should get them on because I, I I'll say something stupid, but my understanding is yeah. that this is a whole new effort. Well, instead of assuming what they're doing, we should get them on to tell us about mm-hmm. what they're doing. So there mm-hmm. you go. I feel something in the air tonight. That's the title of his thing, <laughs> and you really appreciate my singing. Good day, chaps. <laughs> oh, that's where for Australian and ended up doing biggles. Good day, chaps. <laughs> Tally hair. <laughs> Just wanted to say I've always loved hearing Will extol the superiority of in-flight posing of aircraft. Always, he's capitalised it, looking better. <laughs> and it's not just a bee's dick indifference, of course. Keep it in the air. Loved having JD on the podcast and your interview with Scott at SMS was very enlightening. I have to say he's entirely correct. It was great having JD on the podcast. It was. And Scott Super was cool. very enlightening. Yeah. The rest of it, eh, not so much. <laughs> Well, hey, look, I've never made a secret that I think airplanes are prettier in flight. I mean, yeah, of course, that's where all the lines are there. But yeah, I mean, making a model of it is a whole different thing because it is difficult, especially if they have the spinny roundy things on the front of them to make it look cool. And I, so I think we all just sort of default to the least of the evils, except for Chris. And yeah, I mean, look, me appreciating the beauty of an in-flight aircraft is also a completely different thing from just wearing everybody out about it. So, yeah. We take the piss out of him, but actually I'm, I, I respect hugely his dedication to his particular uh, way of doing it, you know, and his particular um, wing he's tilting at and uh, good on him. You know, he's, he he's is dedicated. I mean, there are certain things in the hobby that are nigh on impossible to do. In, in ship modelling, the big one is um, smoke from smokestacks. You just can't do it and have it look good. You know, people stick uh, cotton wool on it. always just looks like cotton wool. Um, and this is one of those as well. You know, aircraft in flight, to make it look realistic is incredibly difficult. Impossible. 
I will say. So, yeah. yeah. But he's, yeah, he's the, trying. He's trying to push it as far as he can. The compromises that you have to make to do those things don't, they don't um, push the quality the juice is of the not work. worth the squeeze. Yeah. yeah, that's it. But I will say this as a, as an engineer and a fit guy, I completely sympathize and agree with him about, about the parts to make it, you know, gear, you know, gear up, gear doors I closed. I don't see why the gear doors can't fit. I agree completely. I mean, that's 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 absurd. It's ridiculous that they don't that they can't do a better job of that. That to me is just lazy. So I sympathize with him on that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, again, I'm just gonna say we don't have to talk about it every time we can talk about it. <laughs> hey, <laughs> which is ironic way, coming from me. I know, and he models his way, and yeah. he likes to talk about how he models his way, and and you know, all power to him. All right, so last letter. I got this one all of on my own. And yeah, my inbox is cooler yeah, than everybody else. My inbox is cooler than everybody else's inbox because I opened it the other day to find an email from St. Paul himself. Oh, a rivet counter. Oh, yes, and he is. Regarding a couple topics from your most recent podcast, um, Monogram, this Chris will appreciate this, Monogram's 148th Mosquito from 1966 was molded gear up. If you wanted the gear down, you needed to cut the doors open. And I I just love that. He even has a picture of the fucking box (laughs) because he has it. And I mean, who who is going to Right. I mean, who is going to know that except for St. Paul? And I just loved it. It's great. And then he says, uh, uh, in regards to Mustang gear doors, there seems to be a fair amount of BS. So let me add a little more information. Many years ago at a Warbirds fly-in, I was standing at the wing of a P-51 that just shut down. The pilot exited the cockpit and was standing on the wing. His buddy in another Mustang yelled, hey, Bob, your gear doors are still up. The pilot reached into the cockpit and the doors dropped like a rock. When he got off the wing, I asked him about the bleeding down story. And he told me there was a relief valve in the cockpit. And if you want to maintain the system properly, you should release the pressure when the aircraft is parked for any length of time. So there you go. That's pretty cool. That's good. That is damn good rivet counting. Um, So he says, uh, um, anyway, he goes on to say some other things and includes some pretty cool photos. And the sort of summary of the whole thing. He even sent me a picture of the hydraulic relief valve in the cockpit, of course. (laughs) And in typical, very humble, Paul Budzik signs off with, you know, basically noting that, you know, you can't be wrong. They can be up, down, or part way. Um, And he just says, yeah, so maybe this is some helpful additional information. I I love it. It's so cool. I love the fact you literally can't be wrong with that. You can't. Because you could just say the pilot forgot to pull the release valve and that's why they're up and it's exactly. i'm sure you'll find lots of photos of it if you want yours down you can say well it's a good pilot he knows what he's doing he, he always pulls his relief valve uh. exactly <laughs> <laughs> sorry i couldn't, couldn't say release valve too many times without giving it a chuckle yep and it makes me feel good because i've worked hard to make the doors on the little on the on the tiny mustang be at completely wacky angles to each other yep. but that's also in the reference photos that are available of Ding Hao. So I know, really yeah. hope you get dinged for that out of the show. It's, yes, you know, it's a little bit of a troll. I love because it. Because they literally can't be right on that one. They, they can't. can't be right in saying you're wrong. 
and it highlights it highlights the issue around is it accuracy or construction yeah because that's a whole you know that's a whole thing it also highlights the fact that there's what actually happened with a lot of things and there's what looks right on a model mm-hmm. and quite often it has to be what looks you know can't explain it very well but um there are things people expect to see on a model and when you, sometimes the reality doesn't jive with lo- what looks right in scale it's really strange yeah and this is one of my pet peeves is is model makers who don't look at the whole thing and and, and look as model makers we do get tunnel vision it, it's like our nature that's part of how we do what we do um, and rivet counting is sort of the extreme end of the tunnel vision thing, but, but it's always annoying when it's like the thing I was saying earlier about the, Oh, it's got rivets and panel lines here, but there's not any right next to this area. Like, think about that for a second. You know, if you look at a model that is otherwise very well built and the gear doors are cockamamie, maybe you should do the math and go, Oh, maybe there's a reason for that. Or maybe just pass in again. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, you ready to get into our interview with Spud? Woohoo! Oh, yes, people, people are going to love this. It's really a good interview. Yep. Yeah, as long um, as you can get yeah. past all that bloody motorbike talk at the start. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, our buddy Shane is going to be happy. All for you, Shane. <laughs> all right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Spud. Good day to use fruit cutters. This is Tracy Hancock, and I am here to talk to you about one of our sponsors, Tetra Model Works. Tetra Model Works makes photo etch sets for ships, armor, and aircraft in scales from 1 700th to 1 35th. One of their latest releases is the 1 350th scale USS Independence LCS 2 detail upset for the Trumpeter and Academy kit. Two sets for the Trumpeter MTVR, Mark 23 MTVR with Armor Protection Kit Detail Upset, and the MTVR with Armor Protection Kit Interior Set. Also, 172nd SLT 56 Franziska Detail Upset for the Tacom Kit, and a 1700th Japanese Light Cruiser Yubari Detail Upset for the Pit Road Kit. 1-350th, 1-35th, 1-72nd, 1-700th. I mean, they've got everything you need. And you know it's the finest quality or we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast. So hustle your butt over to tetramodel.com to look at their entire catalog. All right, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have with us uh, Spud Murphy. How you doing, Spud? I'm good. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me on. Real privilege. Thanks for coming. Not a problem. Yeah. We're all we're all fans. Yeah, we're stoked. <laughs> we're stoked to have you aboard the union. Thank you. You're glad to be part of it. This will be the the third attempt at this interview for us. Um, <laughs> we, we had some technical issues and whatnot postponed it for a day and, and it's been well worth it. The sound quality is much better that, that we're getting today. Um, so let's jump in and kind of hit some of the things we talked about yesterday. Um, yeah, sure. How did you get into modeling? What's, what's been your modeling journey? 
Um, started off as a young kid. My dad owned a hardware business and used to bring home the sort of little cheap Airfix kits uh, that we took build together, and I just paint them in whatever gloss colours that he had, you know, selling in the hardware shop, and put every decal on, you know, from the whole decal sheet would all go on the one model. <laughs> so did that really as a sort of child. Um, my best friend Jeff Adams, another modeler, we used to start off doing war gaming from the old Airfix books, and he always wanted to be the guy at the German side, so. <laughs> There wasn't a great deal of U.S. and British, you know, in armor in the sort of that was comparable. So uh, from a sort of early age, I started to learn how to convert and try and scratch build, just so I could have tanks that would possibly beat him in in our little war games. Um, and it just sort of progressed from there till sort of leaving school, college, partner, you know, grown up world. Um, as I was saying, uh, I got randomly given a Tamiya Yag Tiger for a, a Christmas present. Yeah, um, must have been about 1992, something like that. Um, and uh, it was like, you know, winter, dark evenings, cold, wet outside. So I thought I'd just stick this thing together. But I guess um, from like having a you know competitive spirit, as I said to Tracy, you know, riding motocross since I was a child. Motocross. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, our I, our uh, buddy our buddy Shane Doke is listening. He's going to be stoked to hear that. <laughs> and yeah, I uh, I went to local news agents and happened to see the same model on the front cover of a magazine. This one looked a lot better than the one I'd painted. Support the magazine was intrigued how you know they used the techniques they'd used and airbrushes and stuff. So I went out and. Bought all the lot, bought the products, bought the airbrushes, and and then sort of went from there. Um, went to a, a local model show in a place called Gravesend in Kent. Uh, took uh, six models, um, entered them into competition. Didn't really know what I was doing, just dropped them in, you know. Uh, and I ended up coming away with four first places and two third places. <laughs> Not bad. Um, and I, I was I was absolutely sort of amazed by it. Um, and the thing was as well, I, I got given uh, prize money and got models uh, as as prizes as well. And you know, part of me thought this is a lot better than riding motocross and you know <laughs> crashing my brains out for <laughs> a, a sort of twenty quid in sixth place in a race. Um, so sort of that fueled the hobby. Uh, and then uh, I was approached by um, uh, Spencer Pollard, the editor of Military and Scale, um, to do a couple of articles, and it went from there. Then um, left the Air Force, uh, which I'd been in for 17 years. And uh, uh, the editor, well, Marcus Nichols, the editor of Tamir magazine, uh, said there was a position going for a new magazine called Model Military International. Um, so uh, I took on the role as editor for, for that for three years. And, uh, and sort of since then, I've sort of been fairly proactive, I'd like to think, in, in the hobby in general. Very cool. Well, I love hearing that we're, you know, sort of brothers from another mother with uh, the whole dirt bike and model making thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it's two extremes. You know, you've got this <laughs> sort of, you know, elbow banging, barging, sort of very aggressive side of you, you know, to, to win and ride it, you know. A, and then there's motocross. Crazy sport. 
Yeah, and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought he was talking. I thought he was talking about an IPMS show. There, for a second. <laughs> well, that's it. With a motocross, someone will just say to your face whether they don't like you or not. <laughs> yeah, and then yep, and then the elbows fly. Well, that's awesome. I don't want to. I don't want to get this totally derailed, but I have to ask. I mean, what kind of what kind of riding do you do? Uh, what kind of bike are you on? I mean, you know, just I gotta know. Oh, uh, yeah, um, KTM 250XC at the moment, uh, oh, the cross-country bike. Um, I'm, I'm at 55, I'm too old to do motocross now, even though my brain says I can do it, my, my body <laughs> says otherwise for the rest of the, the week. The older we get, the faster we were, right? That's absolutely, yeah. I, um, <laughs> just as a little side story, my, my son's uh, in the Army and riding really well. He's in the Army Enduro Championships. That's and, cool uh, that they have that. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and they're really well looked after. Um, we were doing an event on the same minute, and it was pine trees, tree roots, horrible going, everything I despise. And uh, Scott said, oh, go in front of me. So I went off as quick as I could go, flailing like a ragdoll, arms and legs everywhere, ricocheting off the trees. <laughs> Got to the end of the, the checkpoint. And uh, look back thinking I've left him standing, turned around and he was stood balancing his bike on the pegs um, and said, Dad, if you want, you can go faster if you like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at, at that point, the, 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 the shoulders went down and it was just the, the, the realisation that, you know, my son was now a lot quicker than me and uh, I, I had to sort of bow out gracefully. <laughs> Yeah, I think that day comes in every rider's life. But Absolutely. this is great because I've, you know, I've done all of it, you know, motocross, enduro, desert. So now I know that whenever I make that comparison between the gold, silver, bronze system and the ISDE scoring system, there's at least one guy out there who knows what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Funny enough, just before we came on air, I was watching, uh, we've just had the Western Supermare Beach Race, which is uh, about a thousand bikes. I know, uh, I've, uh, yeah, I've seen video of it. That looks amazing. I was just, I, I, I've done it about 10 times over the years. What? And I was just, yeah, I was sat watching it just now and I just thought, part of me wishes I was there. And then the rest of me says, oh God, I think all the cleaning of the bike and the wrecking of your bike and all your gear and all the expense and it was then i think that's where you know your your older more mature self takes over and you know like say yeah. that in the past yeah I, every time i've seen that i've thought you know if i was still in that place in life where i could ride that i would that's a that, that's a trip i would have to make but but it would be great to do it on a borrowed bike so you didn't have to deal with the <laughs> fact that all that all we, that beach yeah. beach sand just destroys your shit. Well, I, I was sponsored by a, a, a dealer in uh, Bristol called Fowler's, and um, most people would get their brand new bike so they could turn up on a new bike and try and impress everybody. I always used to ride <laughs> it on my old bike that I was just yeah. about to hand back. Exactly. <laughs> Someone exactly. else's nightmare. <laughs> much, much better strategy. So you said you said uh, you're on a KTM 250, uh, two stroke or four? Yeah, two stroke. Oh God, yeah, of course a two stroke. 
Uh, <laughs> as, as we said, four, four strokes are considered the old man's bikes. <laughs> it's like that. It's like that. Well, I, I mean, I get it. I've been, I, I started, I, you know, when I, I was racing back in the day on two strokes and I, when the YZ 400 came out in 1999, the very first one, I rode one and I was like, okay, this is a game changer. Yeah. And I was, I was mostly four strokes from then on. But I get it. You know, most of the off-road guys, even now, still love still love the two strokes, and uh, you know they just have advantages in the tight trees. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I must admit, my son uh, he changed his bikes like the wind, um, and he had a three fifty Husky four stroke motocross bike. And the very first time I went out on it, I think the second lap I was about three or four seconds quicker than I was on my two stroke. You know, so uh, yeah, they are so so nice to ride and so easy to ride but uh, i think i'm just very old school and i like the smell of a two-stroke <laughs> it is it is it is a beautiful thing well i don't want to wear everybody out with dirt bike <laughs> talk because you know how it goes you and i could talk about dirt bikes for the next yeah, two right. hours but that's awesome <laughs> that's yeah but that's that's really cool good stuff thank you well, well yesterday when we were trying to get this off the, the ground we were talking a bit about how your dirt bike history sort of informs your weathering on your models today, because, you know, as, as a dirt bike rider, you, you know, the two of you were talking about how mud gets everywhere. It, it'll get yeah. in places that you, you know, it's almost illogical uh, that it would get there, but you know, you spend all that time cleaning your gear and cleaning your bike afterwards. You you're getting pretty intimate with like the, the mud. And yeah. it seems like we we got off uh, yesterday, and you immediately jumped back on your sixteen scale uh, Sturmgeschutz and and started applying that mud on the inside of those uh, shirts, and and it looks yeah, super right. authentic. Mm. It looks really Thank good. We're, we got to post pictures of it, but it's totally true. Nobody knows more about dirt than than motocross guys. No, that's it. Yeah, we always say we're, we get very intimate with the stuff. Dudes can um, have know, a half an hour conversation over the differences between loam and sandy loam. <laughs> and and it's things like um, where I've been trying to incorporate it onto the Stug, uh, looking at areas where you know that vehicle would be hotter, so you know you get the, the mud dry, so you get that lighter mud effect where it would sit. So I, I, I've definitely taken uh, my sort of experiences with the stug you know obviously looking at reference photos but just the sort of logic of where would that sit why would it get there how would it get there where would it be flicked up from um and then hopefully when you know the model's finished and people look at it you know it, it does actually make sense instead of it just looking like it's just been dipped in a bucket of mud i was looking at the photos and i have to say you are so nice to see you putting it on like the swing arms and stuff because my pet hate is guys just clog up the tracks with it maybe put a bit on the wheels and that's it. And it's like, you know, mud flies around, especially when you're churning it up with a great big dirty track. It's going to get, you know, anywhere that can settle, it's going to settle. Well, what I loved was how you how you mixed in all the, like the grass and leaves and, and mm. how did you, how, well, how did you make the mud? What material did you use? And how did you get that super realistic looking mix of trash in there? Um, they were they're mainly the um, AK products um, or their sort of real muds. Um, and then uh, talking to Lester Plaskett, um, he suggested adding uh, tea leaves from a tea bag into them, and it gives you a really nice texture. 
uh, quite a granular texture. And then um, I've been given some of those balls of, I think they call it seagrass. It forms like a small ball and it's quite sort of synonymous with the Mediterranean. Um, and then just using a pair of scissors, just chopping those up into very short strands, um, just mixing it all in. And it it gives you like a real sort of stucco, claggy paste. Um, and because of the, the amount of products I've used, they, they bind together so well. Um, and you can obviously just add, you know, I just added some uh, gloss in there just to um, really give like a wet feeling to the sort of thicker areas of the mud. And then the areas where I wanted it to sort of be dry, they, they were left without any gloss in there. And it seems to have given a, a, a mix that I'm sort of happy with. Yeah, paying attention to those details uh, really matter. And also just having an understanding of how things work. You know, the, the tracks throw up mud from the backside, you know. So you, right, you, got, yeah. you got mud all over the, the arse end of your vehicle, um, less so in the front, but one of my pet peeves is always seeing people, you know, attempting to do snow and they put snow on the engine deck. Yeah. Like, well, it's the hottest part of the tank. Well, how is there still That's snow right. there? Why is there, why is there no moisture where snow would have melt started to melt? You know, it's either just clumps of snow and dry tank. It's, it's one of those where, you know, you, you see it at competitions and model shows um, where people have, have attempted it and either, the products haven't really been the suitable product for it. So you can see what they've been trying to do, but maybe just hasn't, they haven't sort of got it weighed off completely. Um, but yeah, a lot. it's great when you see people having an attempt, but I think sometimes people are just hindered by the stuff, the products that are available to, to make it look realistic or the, you know, the experience and, and the skills. Yeah. There's something to be said for, for looking at other people's work that you admire and, and taking lessons from that. But if you're not paying attention and you're just kind of trying to make it up as you go along, it, it never looks right. You know, you have to, you have to go back to reference. You have to look at and understand how things really work. Yeah, I think definitely. And, and over recent years, you know, there's so many names I could, could sort of rattle off that the guys that are at the, the pinnacle of, of the hobby, where they're pushing the envelope and where for, I think for a long time people had sort of like um, a tick list of, you know, the, the rust, the chipping, the, the weathering, the mud, dust. But you see guys, for instance, like Lester Plaskett, they'll, they're constantly striving to try something new and they get it absolutely perfectly right. And it seems to open up a lot more modelers' eyes to it and, and they get that sort of eureka moment. I think, oh, right, that's, that's definitely what I want to, to replicate and, and, you know, and these guys are all so sort of forthcoming with the information, which I think is great that, you know, um, I can remember when I first started, you know, you'd see guys um, with a really nicely painted model, you'd ask them how they did it and it was like all cloak and dagger and they didn't want to tell you, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but thankfully, you know, uh, things have moved on and social media, internet and YouTube channels, uh, you know, have, I've made it so much more accessible and I think it's helped the hobby hugely. I totally agree. That's the good side of social media. I mean, it's like you said, it's made everything so much more accessible and you can see how it, how it filters out and sort of percolates through the community when you see, you know, 
just some guys like, Hey, this is my third model and I'm, I'm trying oils. What do you think? You know, that, that used to, I mean, even five, six years ago, that used to sort of be limited to the Mike Rinaldi's and the Adam Wilders of the world. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously from my own experiences editing magazines, you're trying to uh, sort of pass over this information to someone that really they need to see, say, like the consistency of the paint or the product, the, the pressure they use and the speed they're applying something or, you know, how they're, pa- they're passing over the model with the airbrush, for instance. And it's absolutely impossible to try and do that in three or four photos in a magazine. But with the advent of, like, say, YouTube and people like Martin Kovac with, you know, Night Shift, you know, it's you've only got to see how many hits and views they get on the or he gets on his his channel and you know and he's you know in the community the modeling community is like a household name now um and it's really really helped so many people to um to to improve which is a great thing you know yeah it absolutely is i mean the social media aspect of being able to it, it connects people you can connect with somebody that you really admire. You can get to know their work by looking at the photos, but you can also, you know, reach right out to them and ask them specific questions and, and they're happy to help. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've done it many a time and, you know, people have contacted me and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's really humbling when someone, someone does, you know, and it's great that, you know, with mobile phones now, you just, you know, you can go to your workbench, take a photo of the paint you use, the product you use and send it straight to them. And, you know, it, makes such a difference and and it's one of these you know the only i think the worst bit is forgetting that there's time zones you know that you get chatting to someone and you forget the the other side of the world you know and they're probably like thinking you know <laughs> great thanks for thanks for this really important information that you've just sent at three o'clock in the morning yeah. <laughs> we do that to sam dwyer all the time yeah i i'm i'm saying sam and i <laughs> chat, and i think luckily we we chat quite a lot actually and we would just discussing a conversation that was on Andy's uh, Andy's hobby headquarters, uh, Sherman Bill page today, which was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, luckily it's sort of uh, the end of my day is the beginning of his day, so it kind of works out okay. Sam is just a chatty Kathy. I mean, it's a social is, butterfly. Yeah. I used to feel special when he talked to me. Now I realize <laughs> he talks to everybody. It's like yeah, the list of people actually... he doesn't talk to is shorter. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure his bosses must love the fact that it's, you know, yeah, it feels right. like this is his full time job. Is right. You're a data. Yeah, he's a data scientist, right? What do you do at work? <laughs> well, apparently, he builds models in front of two giant monitors. That's what I'm. Yes, thinking. yeah, yeah. He's probably built an algorithm to do his job, and he just he just hasn't told anyone. He lets it do it while he sits there and builds models. Right. He's at home just hitting enter every now and then. <laughs> With that Homer Simpson, with that nodding bloody bird yeah. thing, <laughs> I, I, I did exactly the same when I was in the air force. I used to, uh, for a while, I worked in uh, the armament section, and uh, we used to work in small arms bay. So anybody that wanted to come in had to get through three sets of security doors and ring bells. So it gave me ample, ample opportunity to sort of put all the modeling stuff away that I've been working on. <laughs> Literal warning. That's a, yeah, yeah. So I have to ask you, you've, you've worked on aircraft. What crew chief would ever? Did you see dirty planes? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we Obviously, I was deployed to Afghanistan quite a lot, and our 
our C-130s were absolutely filthy. Um, and, you know, I've got some photos on my laptop of, um, uh, we had a, a C-130J was my, my last sort of aircraft. And uh, we flew into Bagram, taxied down uh, the taxiway, which had just been resurfaced. And we just had two great big arcs of black tar all up the side of the airframe from uh, where the, you know, the, the, tarmac hadn't fully dried when they sent us down there and the, the captain did say he said uh, i've had to apply quite a lot of power to get through this tarmac um, <laughs> and the, the the other one that i it, it, certainly with herx uh so i was if someone's built a model one i always want to look at the underside because um <laughs> from the galley on the flight deck um you tip all your tea and coffee away and it would just vent out the underside of the airframe and so you'd have like a, a 40 foot tea stain underneath it. <laughs> I've never seen anybody ever ever do that but when you were underneath doing checks on antenna and aerials it was always something I thought I should incorporate that one day if I ever build one. Well I don't know about anybody else but I want these photos. I don't care if I'm ever going to build a C-130 model. I, I want these photos for my collection. The, the uh, the other one was um we'd taken a brand new aircraft out to Afghanistan and um I was doing the upstairs walk around so I'd come up through the escape hatch up onto the upper surface of the wings and um all along both wings we had uh circular patches of paint missing that were anywhere from two to four feet in diameter, just back down to bare duralumin. And um the story goes that the RAF had said to Lockheed, we don't want the paint planes um, zinc chromite primed. Um, we're going to use this new paint that negates the need for this zinc chromite. Obviously, it didn't work, and the paint <laughs> peeled off in, in massive scabs. So we were flying around with all these wings glinting at everybody, you know, trying to be all low-level. and. <laughs> so uh, I, I ended up having to, we had to email back to our, our base RAF line and, and get someone to go to the local Halfords uh, <laughs> automotive store and buy a dozen tins of Halfords grey primer, which is synonymous with every UK modeler for spraying yeah. as a primer on the model. So, yes, yeah, so, so, and it was actually a really, really good match for the, uh, the, the grey that we, you know, the, 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 the MOD had spent a fortune buying that was supposed to be the, all singing and dancing. Somebody yeah. just retinned the Halfords and sold it to the military. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. And shipped, shipped it out so we could all sit there, all, all cross-legged, spraying big patches of paint on on our wings. That that is a wonderful story. I mean, it just it goes along with our buddies over at at Model Geeks. You know, those guys are all neck associated with with naval aviation, and they talk a lot about how grody you know aircraft get on on carrier duty. And the fact that you know, guys, just go to the paint locker. Somebody, somebody will, somebody will, will. Uh, they told me the proper terminology is they'll gripe, they gripe a scratch. And so when somebody gripes a scratch of bare metal, somebody then they got to go get a can of paint out of the paint locker, and it's whatever's there, and just go cover it. It's yeah, not, I, you know, no, nobody cares about making it perfect. You can't. Well. What I'll have to do is I'll, I'll send you a couple of photos I've got from the first Gulf War. Um, and uh, we had a, a couple of our hercs that needed to be painted in that Gulf War pink. 
And basically that was just British Army sand, red primer and white mixed together in buckets. And um, we rolled it on the plane. <laughs> and uh, and the, the best bit is it only goes up two thirds of the tail fin because um, the, the you rollers have a on the extension <laughs> didn't work because it's tall enough, and no, and no one was brave enough to go to the top of the ladder while stood on the horizontal stabilizer. You know, sort of, you know like, it's like you know. So, so how did you die in the Gulf War? Well, I just fell off the back end of my airplane. I, you know, I, I fell off a ladder. Yeah, that's a, you know. lost pressure on the. Floor. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I would make for one one interesting paint streak. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, someone will cover, someone will do a model of it and, and copy it exactly, and then you'll sort of go, "Do you know why the paint arcs down over that way?" Like, screaming at the same time. Yeah. Why do you think it is that aircraft modelers are just generally so much more reluctant to do this kind of stuff? than armor modelers are? Um, I, I, to be honest, I think it's because, you know, most aircraft look so nice, you know, uh, and I think we typically expect them to look clean and tidy. And obviously a, a, a lot of the aircraft you see photographed gen, tend to be at air shows, you know, so they generally have like, you know, shiny examples there. Um, so that's what people's perception of them is. But I also think as well, as, you know, it's like, I think even armor modelers, you know, you get to a point in the model and it's looking great. And then, you know, you've got to start making it look a mess and it's all too easy to make it look a mess and not like, you know, that it was, that was intentional and it can, you know, it's a fine line. So, but I think for aircraft modelers, it does tend to be more of a sort of, I guess, maybe a mental block that, I do like when you see armor modelers have a go at aircraft because they don't seem to be sort of held by those constraints and they'll just go full on and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and be a lot more risky with, with the weather in. I think most armor modelers know how to, they know their materials, right? So they know how to pull yeah. it all back together at the end. And it's just a matter of like uh, increasing your skills incrementally with each model and learning new things and being able to push it forward. And if you're already a pretty accomplished aircraft modeler and you get the build right and the paint right and everything right, then it's it's got to be pretty daunting to take the next step and just start fucking it up. Yeah, Not, yeah, not knowing whether you yeah, can definitely. tie it all back together in the end and make it look right. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good thing that you've got a lot of the new products available. You know, you've got these ones where uh, like the chalk based ones for doing panel lines and things where, you know, if you do get it wrong, you can just basically re-wet it and get rid of it all. And, you know, you've got a clean, clean slate again, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I've seen when an armor modeler does, you know, an aircraft. And I think it's also, if it's not your forte, you maybe, I know it sounds a bit sort of crass that you may not have quite as much care, you know, for it as, you know, as an aircraft modeler, you know, it's it's your your main sort of hobby and it's the thing you, you know, you put your best effort into. But if I build an aircraft, I, I think I tend to be sort of free from the constraints of, that seem to be applied by the aircraft modeling fraternity. So I'll just kind of go in there and go sort of mad with it because I look at it as a bit of light relief from the stuff I normally do. So, you know, maybe if aircraft modelers built some armor, 
it would it would sort of give them the chance to sort of be a bit more free with experimenting with more extreme weathering techniques. They haven't got the patience to build armor. <laughs> it's a lot more work. Yeah, I do. I don't know, man. Cockpits, wheel wells. No, yeah, no. Yeah, after after all the <laughs> sanding and fussing that I've been doing for the last six weeks on this tiny little Arma Stang, uh, I, before I even get to the part where I feel like I can paint the damn thing, I'm I'm not going to agree. <laughs> yeah, but you put the perfect imperfectionism, didn't you? That's the problem. Well, I don't know about all that, but it's just so fussy. And maybe that's the deal with with, with aircraft modelers. Is I think. I mean, you, you said something there that, that really that, that really caught my attention, Spud, about, about aircraft just look so nice. And I think what you meant was like the lines, right? Like the shape yeah. of the thing. Yeah, yeah and, and, and we get, yeah, I mean, we do. Aircraft modelers are obsessed with shape. And plus it's generally at a smaller scale. I mean, even at 48 scale, which, you know, it's, that's the most popular, it is yeah. harder. It is harder to replicate weathering effects than it is at 35th scale yep um, come back when you've done 1700 with this 48 bullshit I, 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 yeah i know i know but but i'm just saying that relative you know there's a relative difference there but but it is it's it's a fascinating thing and i think you're on to something because like i was talking to gabe pincelli one day about my hornet and you guys know gabe is an, an amazing craftsman and a super good painter but he doesn't do heavy weathering. And we were he and I were talking about the color of the position lights on Hornets. Are they green? Are they blue? And he was showing me pictures because he was a pilot. I mean, he's right. seen them in person <laughs> hundreds of times. And he showed me a picture uh, that was of the land of the light in question. But all I could see was kind of in the background, this pylon that was just roached as fuck and <laughs> we were kind of laughing about the fact that that's all i saw and he didn't even notice <laughs> so you know it's just a, it's just a mindset it's just a thing it's what you know it's it's what we're into with what you're saying about the products as well though spud armor modelers have kind of a language and a recent tradition and all the products to go with it of weathering and aircraft modelers don't mm -hmm. really have that I mean, if you look at the amount of products available to armor modelers, they just aren't available to aircraft modelers. Very true. Yep, yeah. exactly. And I think as more aircraft modelers weather, that will tip over. But at the moment, because the non-weathered crowd are in the majority. Like the, one, the only one I can think of is uh, ammo airfield dust. That's a Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw How that in the hobby shop. How come yeah. in? Yeah, one. 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 There's only there's only one dust for airfields. Yeah, All airfields in the world have a certain <laughs> dust laid on them. I did that, for that. But it's 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 the same as the sort of like you can get panel line washes, and mm -hmm. where some of the companies have released a a paint that will be you know Luftwaffe yellow or something, and you just go well, actually you could go to Windsor Newton Daler around you know and buy your know, cadmium yellow, which is pretty much the same color, but it's the bit of that leading a horse to water you know unless you specifically name it for that side of the hobby some people won't buy it because you know a really it, good point it goes, it goes to that old adage of you know it's um the the recent uh 16th scale m5 stewart that i built and i've been asked so many times what olive drab i used 
and to be honest you know it was a uh, mr hobby color and it was mixed to the nth degree with all sorts of other shades to get the the look i was after in my own eye um and as long as it's not you know day glow green or or something that's bordering on black you know you you're not too far wrong but it is one of those and i think you know probably aircraft models maybe more so are slightly more obsessed about the correct shade of paint you know and to go back to my air force days you know when we the the, the j model hercs the royal air force had 25 of them delivered and it was about two and a half years i think between the first and last arriving and when they were all lined up together on the on the pan, no two of them were the same shade of grey, you know, where they'd all weathered differently, been washed different amounts of times and, you know, operated in different theatres. But, you know, in any even when I was editing the magazines, you could put a, a photograph up on my editorial um, to sort of almost justify that, you know, you're not going to be wrong as long as you're within this spectrum. But mm. it's still that age-old argument, you know, what's the correct shade of Uncle Gelb or Olive Drab or, you know, RF. Yeah. You guys may really be onto something, though, about the sort of tail wagging the dog because, like, whenever I see guys asking about uh, or, you know, or talking about their favorite paint and, and it's aircraft model, and I know it's aircraft modelers, it's like, well, I am so sad that Testers isn't or Model Masters not making enamels anymore because they had all the correct federal standard colors. And it's like, I mean, if that's your reason for loving paint, you're, you're on the wrong, you're, you're, you're on the wrong, wrong wavelength, man. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, but it, but it, I mean, you're right. It's maybe it's the fact that, that because the, because those exist, they're led to believe that's what they're supposed to use. And that's kind of analogous to all of the weathering products that exist for, you know, for the armor guys. So, you know, maybe this opens up a, maybe if, if MIG and, and AK and all those folks started making, maybe that's a new, you know, a whole new marketing yeah. direction for them. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, the classic example I had was I went, to, I was based in London uh, quite a long time ago, went to a local model club and I built a, to me, a FW190 uh, D9. And I just mixed the colors by eye took it to the club stand and, you know, a club, uh, club night. And one particular guy was really, you know, just spent an inordinate amount of time hovering over this model. And it was just one of those, I, I build armor and I just fancied, I just liked the look of a D9, D9. And uh, so uh, he then said to me, he said, oh, what colors did you use? And when I said, oh, I just mixed them from the Tamiya range, I think he literally clutched it where his heart was. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and sort of staggered backwards, never to talk to me again, you know? And it was just like, I just, I just mixed them. Like, you know. But up until that point, he was saying how much he really liked it. And, you know, and it was, uh, I'd, I'd not got a, you know, a, a specific color out of a bottle. So suddenly it was not a likable thing. You know, it would be impossible. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. But then they say, what mix did you use? I'm like, well, I don't know. Yeah, it's not a precise guess mix. It was just a guess guess mix. Which is one of the things that I think you're exceptionally good at, Spud. Like yeah. you're, you're great yeah. at just grabbing what you have to make the color you need. Like your Centurion and Chris's book, at one point you're like, well, I needed a, a grayish 
uh, yellow dust. So I grabbed gray and yellow and made a dust. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's how you do it. You don't reach for the grayish yellow bottle of it dust. It wasn't like, Pyongyang Earth or something. That's right. <laughs> yeah. and you, and you've then, done that multiple times in multiple articles that I've read where you've just like, okay, well, I mix these two things together because that's these are the components of the color that I needed. You know, like you're not sitting around twiddling your thumbs waiting for that special bottle of paint to arrive in the post. You, you keep things moving along. You just grab what you have and make what you need. I know. As I, and over the years, I have learned to either take a photo of all the paints that I've used, because inevitably, if I've needed to repaint something later on or rematch that color, and I've just looked at, you know, like a, a, bear. a box yeah. full of paints and think, well, I can't remember which ones I use now. But yeah, it's something I've, I've always done, you know. And I think early days when I, you know, wasn't didn't really want to sort of um, uh, put too much money aside for the hobby because of paying for dirt bikes and stuff like that. So you know, if I had three or four colours, I would make those. They would make do rather than going off and buying another ten bottles of you know paint that I was thinking well, that's you know money I could be using elsewhere really. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need that bottle of air fuel dust. You can make your own. <laughs> <laughs> go, go scrape some dust off the bottom of your fender. It's, but this is a this is a common thread that runs through all of you top level guys that we interview on the union, is that you you have a to- completely different sort of way of addressing color that you know doesn't depend on recipes and not to get too far back into the dirt bike thing but you'll appreciate this analogy when i was you know when i was a young spode and i'd go to the motocross track and some fast guy would come flying out of a hard right hander and huck a triple super technical right and you know what's like when you see some guy who's really fast doing that and you're just you're just like how did he do that so I would gather up the courage to go over to the fast guy's truck and say, hey, man, how are you getting the speed out of that corner to get over that thing? What gear are you in? And he'd be like, I don't know, man. I'm just in the right part of the throttle. And that just like totally short circuited me because I was like, what? You know, how do you not know? How do you not know there has to, you have to be in the exact right gear? And eventually, you know, you figure it out and it, it all makes sense and you get to where you're just ignoring that and you're just doing, you know, you're just going with the flow. That's it. I, my dad always used to say to me, you know, if you're not in the front, you're not going fast enough. And that was all that was important, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. None of the details matter at that point. <laughs> but, um, we were saying about um, the colors and often where I in the early days of doing articles in the magazines where I have this sort of massive concoction of colors to get the, the, the shade that I had in my mind's eye. And then, you know, there was no way when I wrote the article that I could sort of say, oh, I use these 12 colors to get, or, to get shade. What's the exact ratio? Yeah. I'm letting the cat at the back here. I would literally go through the box and go, Right, that looks close enough. I used, and then I would just write down that paint. <laughs> Shh, I made all my mixes up in articles. That's, yeah, that's basically. Yeah. I think it was kind of that. That bit. <laughs> Trade secret out. Do you find that that you're able to um, go back to a color that you sprayed 
days or maybe even longer in the past that you mixed. And now you find yourself having to do a touch up and you're able to on demand mix an almost perfect match. Yeah. Um, pretty much actually, I think it's just sort of years of experience of being able to yeah. do it. But I'll say as I've got older and like the great gray cell matters have been sort of wilting away, I do tend to just take a photo on my phone now, just as a, a reminder. Um, but yeah, generally I, you know, I, I'm pretty good at just sort of, you know, you sort of a chef making, you know, a dash of this and a blob of that. And, you know, the ratios, there's, there's, there's never anything exact with the ratios. And it's just like a, you know, my worst, I'm my own worst enemy because I'll use this. There's, there's probably people who are going to be sort of right. I'll use the now, same brush I'll... for every. 10? Yep, that's exactly <laughs> <what I> <laughs> And then sometimes I pull the brush out and go, oh, that's the exact colour I need. Right, which 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 bottle did I just stick that in? <laughs> and then and you get where, like, if you do mixes and, you know, you've got more than you need, you just dump it back in the bottle because you just don't have to give a shit because you know you can, you know, it's, Except, it'll be fine. That, yeah, I, I, I do do that. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then of course when I come to mix it again, it's not quite the same shade because I've forgotten that I've already changed the shade of one of the primary colors that I've, I've chosen. But, but either, yeah, that either that's, me. either that's okay because the variety is, you know, it's like you were saying about the C one thirties, it's never going to be the same twice, or you have confidence that you can always mix it back to what it needs to be. Yeah. And, and the thing is as well was, you know, with all the, the weathering processes that we sort of incorporate now you know um i think for for chris's book with the centurion um when you look at the original colors that the model was sprayed in mm -hmm. and then when i did this sort of um used the uh Aptoy long industrial earth to give it almost like a glaze a dry brushed glaze and it changed the color beyond all recognition um so <laughs> To be to be honest, I've never really been that bothered about you know, like say the exact shade, because um, you know by the time you've added all the weathering processes, you know you can get it back to you know, where it needs to be. Well, you start off with an idea of what you want it to look like, and then the next stage is a different idea of what you want. Every every time you touch the model, you're you're like adjusting it slightly to what you have in your head. You know, yeah. at, each, at each phase, like, you know, you, it, it just comes from experience and, and knowledge of your materials. Like, you know, the it right does. thing to grab. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and it's a case of um, where I'll know, um, it's, it's almost difficult to explain this. Like, I know what base color I need for it to then, as the stages progress, you right. still stay on track, you know. So that's why I always say if if you're doing like pre-shading, spray it one shade lighter than you're actually comfortable with because you know that I, I seem to sort of be able to guess that once I've put a colour wash on, or I'll say like not that I really do filters, but say a colour wash for instance, I know how that'll cancel out at least one or two shades of the base colour, you know. So that's why I always go a shade or two lighter than you almost feel comfortable with because you do know by the end of the process it'll be where you want it to be if that makes sense yeah yeah it's all kind of uh, informed from the beginning uh, to how to get to the end yeah yeah 
I find that if I fuck up something, you know, acrylics, I can, instead of going back and remixing the acrylics to match, uh, a lot of times what I can do pretty easily is mix the same color with oil and yeah, sort of yeah. t- touch it up with that. Um, yeah, I do that as well. Yeah. I think once you've got a grasp of, say, like the colour wheel, well, you know, obviously I, I did art at school, and then just understanding the colour wheel and how, you know, you've got cold tones and warm tones to each colour and, and how, um, you know, the, the, the classic is where people want to lighten, say, like an olive drab. And, you know, obviously I generally paint US and allied vehicles, so that's the colour that you know, I use a lot. Um but instead of adding white to it or sand, you know, if you add a flesh to the olive drab, it lightens the tone without it changing the hue. Um, so it's, it's little tricks like that that you sort of pick up over over the time and they just sort of sit in your sort of file of, uh, like, experience. Yeah, I mean, of... you, you notice uh, mixing, you know, a, a grey or a, or a buff or something like that where it kind of, or a white where it kind of deadens colour. Whereas yeah. if you mix something with a little color to it, like a flesh, it, it keeps the color kind of glowing alive. That's right. Yeah, it keeps the sort of warmth to it. If you put white into olive drab, it just tends to make it look chalky and mm-hmm. pasty looking. RLM 79. That's my favorite. Yeah. What kind of paint do you like, Spud? Um, I've, uh, I do use a lot of the lacquer paints that Mr. Hobby uh, Mr. Color lacquer paints really, really like those spray beautifully. Um, and also, I do use a lot of life color, and uh, more recently, uh, the AK paints are very lucky to be um, sort of helped by AK, and they sent me a big goodie box of loads and loads of products. So, I've been using those. Um, so, that's really the sort of three main uh, companies who use Mr. Color or Mr. Hobby, life color, and, and AK. Living that lacquer life, baby. <laughs> yeah. Which AK paints do you prefer, the, the third gen or the real colours? Or uh, Both, actually. I've been using, the uh, for the Stug, for example, um, the base Dunkle Gelb was um, the real colour. Because it's lacquer-based, it's such a, a, a tough, uh, durable paint. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've been able to sort of have a play with these, um, basically... Cam- airbrushing the camouflage on with the third generation colors and then using white spirits on a cotton bud to then start rubbing away at the the green and the brown um doesn't have any effect on the the lacquer dunkle gel but it, it's given a really nice sort of worn effect to to the two acrylic paints mm-hmm. um so yeah uh, both the the uh, third gen fantastic really really opaque colors they thin down beautifully and you know they're great for brush painting and and I've sprayed with them um, and the real color yeah it's a it's a lacquer paint so it sprays beautifully so how have you found the the transition from 35th scale to 16th scale um real eye-opener actually <laughs> um i think the main thing was um you know i really fancy doing the the classy hobby stug oh sorry stuart which got me sort of that got the bug um and realizing that you know the just the turret alone was bigger than a 35th scale tank and i found that you know the painting the base color painting was 
was great. But it, when it came to the the weathering, the, it almost felt overwhelming. When you know you need you needed to get really in, in close and chipping and more scratches. Um, so it's just really sort of having to break it down into more manageable sections. Um, but also, as we were saying, with being able to go back to colours you'd mixed previously, if you know a few days or a few weeks ago, to make sure that when you're mixing the colours to work on another section, they still tie in with what you painted, you know, previously. But I've, I've really enjoyed the extra detailing, and you know, the it it really sharpens up your your brushwork. You know, um, with thirty fifth scale, you can represent certain wear and damage. You, you know, uh, sort of like almost like impressionistic style. But on the sixteenth scale, you know, you you have to really think about each sort of chip and scratch and and make them really stand out in their own in, in their own right and they you know they need 100 percent attention to get that overall effect to because uh with that scale um the texture plays a big difference you know plays a big part in it over say like on 35th um so adding things like oil stains and grime and dust that's caught in corners you know you've you've got to sort of bulk it out um and yeah it's just, it's just been a, a real really really interesting learning curve that i've really enjoyed hence why i've now started working on this stug which is taken the best part of a year already <laughs> it's been that long not quite though. as bad as david but yeah not quite as bad as david parker with four years or so or whatever. It was as a four so yeah i'm just breezing along with this one then that's a bit of a double-edged sword then, right? You can you can really give a lot of attention to your mark-making, but then your mark-making gets a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's really sort of, I think, um, made me focus a lot more, where, like I say, with 30 Fisco, you tend to sort of, you know, sponge technique and go along an edge, and that would be fine, but I've found when you're doing it with 16 scale if you just sort of do the sponge technique with for chipping when you look closely you think that's actually just doesn't look right so i've ended up having to basically add all the scratches and chips with a paintbrush you know and um for them so are you are you not doing any hairspray chipping no uh, uh, the only pit i did any hairspray chipping was um the rear sort of exhaust deflector on the stug nothing else has been done with a hairspray at all wow i i usually feel like i can spot it from a mile away when somebody's painting their chips and i would not have i would not have bet money that you were it's impressive man yeah, i'm looking at I'm, I'm 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 looking at photos of the uh, of the M3, and we have to put these up on the page because there's just so much going on here, so many layers, it just uh, super high level of authenticity. Thank you. And some of us got to see it in the flesh. Yeah, it's not <laughs> fair. That's just not. That's just not fair. I, you know what, I especially love that I think you must enjoy at at one sixteenth scale is how much subtlety you can put into things like the rust tones on this sledgehammer head. I, I, I mean, dude, this, this looks like the real thing. And I don't say that lightly. That's, that's not a, that's not a common thing in my, in my opinion. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. I, I did have some guy on when I did post the 
pictures online said that the the head of the sledgehammer was too rusty for the how clean the handle was. It was like <laughs> apologize profusely, like you know. Exactly. It, how rusty should a hammerhead be? That's, yeah. Answers on a postcard. But you you know, like but but you've even got the 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 sharp relatively sharp corners of the head where they have that kind of dark polished metal look to them that things get when you handle them uh, you know i mean you've you've got different rust tones going on on the on each strand of the of the expanded metal grating right there next to the what is that the fuel filler cap i don't know anything about this it is, tank, yeah, but, yeah yeah but goddamn son that's like that is micro scale detail with your weathering textures. I love that. It's it's amazing. I must admit, it's, uh, I think the a real um, game changer for me is I've, I've never used any like optivizers, but obviously it's an age thing that I've now bought myself a, a pair of plus five close up reading glasses. So I think I look like Rick Moranis from Honey I Shrunk the Pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> but like if, if Sarah ever walks into the room with a coffee and I turn around and look at her, she sort of tends to <laughs> drop, drop the coffee and run off. Like, you know. but, uh, but yeah, they, they've made a massive difference that you can get in there. And, and you know, any of the guys that know me always laugh that I, I, I do shake quite badly. And, um, and you know, everybody says, how on earth do you paint anything with the, that shaky hand, you know, and it's like blazing saddles, you know, that's my good hand, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, that's, how you get, that's how you get such random chipping. It is pretty, yeah, it does have advantages. Wearing sort of those sort of close-up glasses, you know, and, and it, it's, and you, you then start to realise that even like a, a five-zero brush feels like you're, painting with a two inch paintbrush you know when you're, you're that close and you know it's that you can't see the wood for the trees where you you focus on say like that fuel filler cap on the, the stewart and you know you've spent 20 minutes adding chips and you think oh god it looks dreadful you tend to take glasses off and then look at it from a normal viewing distance and you think oh actually i'm quite pleased with that you know so it's quite a relief I'm a big fan of magnification because I contend that no matter how good your eyes are, unless you're a fucking alien like Alex Clark and you can see, oh, yeah. you know, our forearm hairs at 172nd scale, you, that you really are going to do better work if you've if you've got it. But I also understand that it's difficult for some people because of the depth perception thing. And uh, but but you just said something that I think I want to try because my Optivisor is a plus five. And it works fine, but the plus five reading glasses idea, that might be money. Yeah, I just got them online and they were so much cheaper than an Optivisor. And then you don't have that worry of having this great big contraption dangling in front of you <laughs> that you end up, you know, as you move forward, snapping half of the you know, the delicate bits off your model. Uh, yeah, I thought you were going to say, because that's what's keeping model makers from getting dates. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a deodorant. <laughs> yeah, that's all lack of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, talking of that, we've we've always, when we go up to Telford, I know this sounds really bad and probably I'll probably get stoned when I go there, you know, in there, um, that we always say that the further uh, a model show is from the sea, the 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 worst the BO is. <laughs> um, and, and Telford is pretty much 
as central as you can get in the UK. I think I know, you, you, you guys in the States will laugh at this, but I believe one of these trivial facts that the furthest you can be from the sea in the UK is 77 miles. And I think um, Telford's pretty much the cent- the epicenter of that. So, um, so um, we always said instead of giving promotional bags, they should have like the the girls, uh, you know, I think we call it links children <laughs> over here, but I think you call it hacks in America. And they should have the promotion girls with a bandolier of these deodorants. So as these guys walk in, they can give them a quick spray or put them through the equivalent of like a sheep dip and then allow them into the show. <laughs> or you can have a photo booth want... set up with these hot yeah. girls. Hey. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe just like... Those security things you walk through at the airport, yeah. but instead of yeah. a metal detector, it sprays you as you go through. Yeah, or, or the or the bomb sniffer thing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's like, a, like a bo level, like you know. And then and it would be great because I think it would be it would be quite a, a thing to watch. You could have everybody sat around and and betting on who's going to come through and who's going to set the alarm off, like you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I've not been asked to be like you know on the show committee. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, you know, I've only been to two shows now, so I have very limited experience, but Omaha is literally in the United States about as far as you can get from any ocean in any direction. Certainly a bit further than 77 miles though. Yeah. Yeah. Seven, yeah <laughs> 770. And I, you know, I saw pretty much all of the model show tropes play themselves yeah. out while I was there. But I not the not the not the stinky one. I there was never a time where I was like, God damn! It just I don't know. It just didn't happen. Maybe I just before got anyone lucky. thinks this is a British thing. I have heard one of the American podcasts talking about it. I think it might have been Mojo. So <laughs> well, yeah, they, yeah. Mo, the Mojo guys were talking about it just the other day. I'm sure it's a thing. I have no doubt about that. Oh, I yeah, don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe I just maybe I just got lucky, or nobody wanted to get that close to me. <laughs> maybe all those lacquers have burnt your sense of smell away. It's possible too. <laughs> It was it was almost we you know we'd sit there and it's really bad that you've got like a tick list and it was like right pair of old combat trousers tick you know and uh, not so long ago it would be like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer t shirt that's like a thousand thousand wash grey um, <laughs> and generally sort of no hair on top but like a really long ponytail at the back and one of my favourite sayings the bald mullet <laughs> yeah that's it or, 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 or like sideshow bob from the simpsons and um <laughs> and the favorite thing i one of the sayings i heard in the uh, in america when i was working on mmir was when they called people's beards like flavor savers because they do like about 100 <laughs> calories of un, uneaten food around <laughs> edges of the beard <laughs> talking of magazines so you worked on a couple you did tamio and you did uh mmir how did you find editing um frustrating really um the you know editing was only sort of like 20 percent of the time it was the rest of the time was juggling with advertising dealing with contributors and you know and all the stuff that you don't you know you don't realize from the outside what what goes on in the, the publishing world obviously as you're fully aware mm. of chris um yeah i was three years with um model military international which was you know, the sister magazine to Tamiya magazine. Um, 
went over to the States to work on MMIR, uh, did that for about 18 months and kind of that all came to a bit of a sad ending. Um, I, I think when we were at the World Model Expo, I did sort of say I should write a book about my uh, <laughs> <laughs> memoirs and experiences there, but it's probably quite libelous. Um, I was going to say, then, we had a good chat at World Model Expo, but I don't know if yeah, we could have broadcast any of it. No, probably not. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one for, one, for the, one of those where there's no one recording, we're having a beer or two. Um, and then uh, I sort of went back into aircraft engineering, um, but uh, Mick contacted me when he was in charge of the original AK Interactive um, and asked me to if I'd come on board with the Weathering magazine. But the problem was it was only really like a part-time job and it only paid part-time wages, but it ended up being more than a full-time job. Um, and it was just, I basically just sort of had enough and, you know, I was earning more money working back on aircraft and and could live a nine to five lifestyle again where, you know, evenings and weekends were my own. Um, and, you know, so I'm quite happy now just to do the odd article for, for magazines and you know i enjoy just posting stuff up on whatever forums are on sort of you know facebook and you know it was great to do the be involved with the afe club book that you know you did mm -hmm. so it was a real privilege to be part of that thank you thank you for taking part my, my pleasure with the internet though and we were you were talking earlier about youtube and everything else what role do you think magazines play now in modeling um I, I, I do think this this sounds a bit harsh, but a bit of a dying dying industry, really. Mm. Um, you know, I sort of I tend to not buy any of the magazines anymore. If I'm if I'm honest, um, you know, you can you can get everything you need now. You know, it's this. I can remember the argument a while ago was um, you know it was easier to have a magazine opened up on your workbench and you know copy there you know and you wouldn't want to put an expensive laptop on your workbench to you know source reference material but now with phones you know and and you know tablets it's um and i think also as well you know the magazines for reviews um because of the way the deadlines work and you know working a couple of months in advance the, the model's already sort of old hat by the time mm. it's been published in a magazine, because you know it's it, you know the reviews are instant online and you know on, on social media. Um, I think kit news and reviews. I saw that um, AFE model had dropped them, and I can totally understand why, because especially yeah. the news, it's eight weeks out of date by the time it gets into print. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and people, you know, people get mouse rage if you your broadband drops out for a second, so they're not going to want to wait eight, <laughs> eight, eight weeks to, to, to know if some resin update's worth the money or not. <clears throat> to find out Airfix have got another Spitfire. <laughs> <laughs> in, in soapy plastic. Yeah. <laughs> With a short shot tail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read many of those uh, uh, online debates, which are quite interesting. I, I, I'm... Genuinely, that guy that sits back with a popcorn and yeah, and <laughs> to, it's just sort of like, oh, this is fun, like you know. And if anybody from the outside world could see how heated these arguments and debates were, it'd just be like, wow. Like, <laughs> if you do do you realize you're fighting about plastic toys, right? Yeah, I know. Well, the, the, the whole time I worked on the magazines, I, I just never knew what to say because it opens up a 
like a wormhole you know if someone said oh what do you do i'd just say oh, i work for a publishing company mm-hmm. and uh, and they go oh but what do you do and then i'd just go oh, i work for a publishing company so it was almost like a, i'd only give my name rank and number you know, because if you said oh, I, I edit magazines and they go okay what type of magazine and then you just like it's that oh just porn yeah, yeah just <laughs> let them, just let them that'll shut them up <laughs> yeah. and, and you know i if you say, oh, yeah, it's a model magazine, and of course everybody goes, oh, yeah, like you know, tits and stuff like that, and you just go, no, it's like plastic models, and they go, <laughs> and, then, and they all go, oh, like Airfix, and you go, no, nothing like Airfix. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and what minor credibility you might have had has gone in an instant. You, know, so. <laughs> you, you, would have, you would have been better off just letting it be porn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> knitting, just knitting. <laughs> yeah, even now, if I go into WH Smith's, you know, our, our local sort of news agency, you know, if I, if I, if I, on a very occasion, I do buy a, a model magazine, I'll invariably hide it inside a donkey porn magazine when I walk to the, the cashier. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so don't get spotted carrying it. Like. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by the idea that they sell donkey porn at the grocery store <laughs> in, in the <laughs> UK. <laughs> well, I've gone off the rails. I'm from, I'm, from rural, I'm from a rural area, so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty mainstream. That's right. Yeah. I should say I grew up in Devon before everyone thinks I'm yeah. hating on Devon. Talking of Devon, actually, your club punches way above its weight you've got some fantastic modelers right we have yeah yeah I, I, well this is a it was a bit of a contentious issue um we went to um the world model expo uh four of the guys from our our original club and a couple of other guys tagged along um and the sort of chairman of our club got his ass in his hand that we'd had our t-shirts made and not been approved by him basically <laughs> so, so uh we came back because we they were tried. the wrong color right yeah yeah and he <laughs> hadn't got one even though he wasn't coming to the world model expo so uh you know it, there was no if i'm honest we, we were all quite sort of peeved that we'd come away with uh quite a few golds and silvers and bronzes awards from from you know the sort of six of us that attended um so uh we sat down amongst ourselves and we've started a new club called the Four Corners Model Club. And our first show will be, you know, the IPMS Nationals at Telford. So, yeah, we're really, you know, looking forward to it. It's Pete Usher, you know, just absolutely mind-blowing dioramas, you know, the mind-the-gap diorama of the World War II German one and, and the railway yard. Uh, Kev Smith does fantastic sort of very sort of gritty-looking models. Dan Sankey, um, really Fantastic World War One modeler, um, Darren Thompson, you know, awesome scratch builder, and and Andy Evans, who you know does amazing figure painting along with sort of small vignettes. So yeah, we've we've got some really really sort of top modelers yeah, in our. That's quite a talent gang. pool. Well, put it like this: your yeah. club's the only club to have had three members on this podcast. So. Oh well, <laughs> <laughs> we have. Sorry, we haven't got around to the others yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of your one of the members built the sky crane, didn't they? That was at the scratch. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, I forgot. Ian McGonagall, yeah, yeah. Ian, what? Very unassuming scratch built, completely scratch built, a one thirty fifth scale uh, Ericsson air crane um, in uh, rigged for like firefighting. Yeah, we've seen the f- Just, the photos mm, of it from from yeah. uh, 
World Model Expo. That's crazy that all you guys live in the same space. Yeah, we the, where most of us are from the two adjoining uh, counties, Devon and Cornwall, um, and uh, Pete Usher's uh, in Wiltshire, which is you know we don't talk about. It. They 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 normally come down to our way. They have to get the webs cut from between their fingers. Um, well, they say they live in the West, but they don't. Yeah, it's not not really. You don't see no, corridor, no, you know, just, I mean, I live in Bristol, and that's pretty much the Midlands to me, and that's closer than he is. Well, we'd call that virtually Scotland from down here. Yeah, yeah it's the North. I think, I, think Fran- <laughs> I think France is closer to us in Bristol. Is yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, and Ian um, Ian's one of these guys that will just see an idea and just go with it, and um, everything he tries just works perfectly just such a talented guy as, as the rest of them are you know and it's and what I find is so good is that everybody's so willing to share information um, and you've got someone who's an expert on every sort of field really you know um, whether it be scratch building aircraft um, figure painting you know so it's, it's I think it's helped all of us that we've all improved by sort of you know um, feeding off each other really it's uh here's another motocross analogy for you it's like the el cajon zone in southern california where all yeah. the famous all factory the... riders came from that's right yeah S- something in the water oh no yeah yeah oh, that, that always makes me think you know we, as a you know, kid in the uk racing motocross as a kid you look at all the, the the old videos from you know crusty demons of dirt and all this sort of stuff and you know on any sunday and all the expansive areas you had to ride um, where, you know, we had nothing and, you know, you take the bike out in someone's field and instantly, you know, people chasing you off the land. So, so yeah. Do you know, do you know, uh, do you know Peter Buckingham? I don't, I'm afraid, no. So you, you guys need to get connected. Are you, I don't know if, are you an SMCG? Have we got you in there and corrupted you yet? Uh, I think we are. Yeah, I'm, yeah. He he posts in there, and you guys should connect because he is. I'd love to get him on here sometime because he is a true world class craftsman. Like like if if you go to if you go to Telford and you go look at the motorcycle category, mm. you can pretty much put money on him being the guy that won because he takes a one twelfth scale kit of something you know you never heard of and pretty much rebuilds every part of it from scratch. But the point is, he was a motocrosser back in the days when it was still called scrambles. Okay, and, yeah, yeah. and he was he was riding a BSA with three inches of suspension travel, which I always give him <laughs> shit about. <laughs> but he's a really interesting guy and a and a real moto head and an absolutely amazing, amazing model maker. Like he does pretty much one motorcycle model per year. That's how much time he takes. Oh, I'll, yeah, if he's at Telford, I'll, I'll definitely look him yeah, up. Yeah, check, check, out, check out his work. Uh, he's, yeah, yeah, he's pretty mind-blowing. Just an interesting guy. <coughs> I'm just getting over a cold, so I've like still got lurgy chest. You and Tracy Lurg- both. Yeah, Lurgy I had, um... Oh, you don't know Lurgy. <laughs> I was I was today years old when I learned this new term. <laughs> Feeling pretty minging with the Lurgy. Yeah, what's the purpose to be being on? <laughs> Sick as a parrot. Yeah. I mean, every episode we're learning something, right? Last episode was uh, bees dick. 
Right. Yeah, right, yeah. It's a unit of time measurement. <laughs> we we take pride in being the most educational podcast. I mean, I'm sure there's podcasts about education out there. They just, they just don't talk about scale modeling as well. Or bee sticks. Maybe science programs, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, we used to call it. Uh, it was a Nat's cock. Was a, a <laughs> in the Air Force. It was like, yeah, it's like, oh, how much do I need this movie? All about a Nat's cock, like so. You know, it was a very, very small amount. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's something that's a very close fit. It's tight as a Nat's chuff. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow you guys managed to make it sound cultured when you say that. Like that. <laughs> Not to English ears, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> That, that always reminds me when we were on a uh, uh, red flag exercise in Las Vegas and first time we went over there, we went up to the stratosphere, up to the very top and you've got the outward angled glass panels that you can kind of lean against and look the thousand foot down or whatever it was. And uh, I kind of, bear in mind, I'll hang at the side of an aeroplane all day as a job, but when I'm on a fixed structure, I kind of on my hands and knees went to the side to look down from the glass. And one of the guys kicked me up the ass. So my head, I head butted the glass, leapt up and went into full Tourette's mode and used every one of the swear words that I had in my vocabulary. And all the Americans went, oh my God, that sounds so posh when you swear. <laughs> I was having a complete meltdown. Like, you know? it was like, okay. Was like, oh, say it again. <laughs> we are totally fascinated with it. I mean, I, I mean, am I the only one who watches like Game of Thrones and wonders why everybody has an English accent or Lord of the Rings or, I mean, you name it. Yeah, but when we watch Game of Thrones, we all see a bunch of like comedians and people that were in soap operas and stuff because it's all these English <laughs> actors. Yeah. Mind you, I've just been watching the latest Andor, and uh, and they're all either Cockneys or from Scotland. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, right. Yeah. yeah, they're all yeah, they all have an English accent too. My 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 brother in law is from Cuba, and he's been watching it with me, and he's like, "Man, I can't understand any of these people." Why do they all have an English accent? It's Star Wars. I'm like, bro, I don't even know. Couldn't tell you. I don't know, but I spotted Doc Brown from Ta- Taskmaster right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time he's on. Duh, 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 duh. When I when I worked on MMIR, we had um uh, the 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 owner of she'll leave nameless uh, had a friend of his that came around who was quite an odious character and. Uh, like it was like what I would perceive as a typical like how you see on TV an American lawyer, um, and obviously it was introduced to him, and he said um, like oh, you know, he started trying to mimic my my English accent, <clears throat> and then <laughs> and then said something like he said oh go on try and do an American accent, so I just said do I look like a fucking performing monkey. Uh, no, I'm not. And, and, and it was just this, like, you know, tumbleweed moment, stunned silence, and then off I trotted. But, yeah, I, it was it was just very strange, you know, that it was that was that was how it was like because I, I was an English guy working for him. I was like I was this sort of, like, you know, plaything and sort of like a pet. <laughs> Americans, Americans don't do accents very well. I'm witness I, to that. Yeah. 
A good example or a perfect example. These guys are witness to how bad it is when I go on. Will do your Australian? I'm not not even gonna do it. Not even. All dead under. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I do the Cockney elbow thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) because it's comedy. You have to understand that guys of my age got taught how to do the Australian accent by Crocodile Dundee. So, you know, no, 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 that, you know, all we know is now that's a knife. (laughs) I'm going to have to edit all this out. (laughs) (laughs) It's embarrassing. I agree. I did have um, a girl in one of the burger places over there when I ordered my food um, said that I sounded just like Hugh Grant. And then the guys (laughs) I was with just started hissing themselves laughing and they said if Hugh Grant was a hillbilly then Spud would be all over that accent <laughs> yeah they don't differentiate much the ear's not there no uh, no I think uh, they were um, it was on one of the sort of late night American chat shows and they were uh, one of the guests was said what they found so fascinating for such a small country how the um, accent changes so massively in such a small area. You know, you think the UK is pretty much the size of Florida, yet you've got, you know, an infinite number of regional accents that are so different from each other. Well, even within London, isn't there, aren't there different accents from one, you know, West End to the other end or whatever the fuck it is? That's right, yeah, yeah. Anyway, welcome to the Sprue Cutters English Lesson Union. Yes, (laughs) You're working on the Stug at the moment. Are you working on anything else or are you a one project at a time kind of guy? Um, I'm sort of one project at a time kind of guy at the moment. Um, I did have a Dragon M48 Vietnam one that I was really, really wanted to get on with. Um, but because I've been <coughs> graciously sent the um, Andy's Hobby 16th scale Sherman to build, um, I really want to get the Stug finished because I know the moment that box comes through my door with the Sherman in it, I'm going to want to stop everything else and just, you know, because the Easy 8 Sherman's by far one of my favourite vehicles uh, and to do it in 16 scale. So, uh, so yeah, I'm sort of desperate to just get the Stug finished before that, that arrives, because otherwise the Stug will just get sidelined. Yeah. How have you found the Stug? It's the dust work one, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, um... Obviously, it's, you know, there's some, there's been some sort of errors, and um, you know, which have been sort of widely publicised about the bow armour thickness. But um, you know, the two options you could buy David Parker's um, correction set, or you know, with a bit of minor surgery, I managed to sort of correct mine. Um, um, but overall, it's actually a really, really nice model, and I think you know, great value as well for you know, it's a lot of plastic and a lot in the box for you know just over a hundred pounds sterling. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I confess that when I think about maybe building my first tank for real, that one sixteenth seems like that might be the thing that gets me to do it because the level of detail is, have you seen the new stuff that David's doing? Uh, the, like his, uh, Madus and all oh, of the individual, yeah. individual, individual the, shells, the shells and, and the clips and the links, the, clip, yeah. the links. What yeah, the, the fuck? The, yeah. The empty cases actually fit in the yeah. individual links, which is just yeah. amazing. Yeah, superb. Yeah. You know he's got to be a little pleased with that. Somebody was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. they look like they yeah. can fit together. And the next picture is like, well, yeah, well, they do. Oh, look, they do, yeah. <laughs> and next week I'm going to fire them. <laughs> yeah, I know he's doing that. 
I know he's doing a 30 cal as well. Especially given that that he didn't start doing Fusion 360 until maybe two years ago. I mean, he his his curve has been rapid. Yeah, it's like it was made for him, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he's doing stuff in, in it's either Blender or ZBrush too. I mean, he's he's just clearly got a knack for it. It's really impressive. What a knob. <laughs> <laughs> so annoyingly good at so many things yeah yeah <laughs> yeah if you can hate the guy for one thing that's it and he's and he's so dapper on top of it it's just not right yeah i must admit um you know with that stug um david you know was really quick off the mark with getting uh the, the things like the jack and the fire extinguisher and the jack block and other bits and pieces out and it's all those little details that you know it's you see on the 16th scale kits where they do cut corners and things have just pretty much been pantographed up from 35th scale with no extra detail added Mm -hmm. to 16th scale so you know i i I, the same as many others i've only got you know the fire extinguisher jack and bits and they do make a huge difference and once you you know you you look at the kit part and think okay that's okay and it's not until you you get say like David's 3d printed part and they are just worlds difference in, in detail. And I think he'll do exactly the same with the, the Sherman, you know, and I hope there'll be quite a few little really cool accessories coming out for that. I feel like he's got a good eye for what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And he can look at the sprues right away and be like, okay, well, this is, this is going to need to be replaced for scale fidelity, you know, and, and detail. Yeah, yeah. Often, you know, there's companies out there that will just replace parts for the sake of it, and they don't really need replacing. Mm, you know, yeah. but I think he, it, the stuff that he produces, you know, are all genuine improvements. The thing is, you know, from from your experience of modelling, whether they're worth it or not, as well, when you're looking at them, because you know how well they'll take paint and how yeah. well you can mm. add effects to them and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and again, in you know, in sixteen scale. Things like those individual tools, they're a model in their own right, you know, and, are, mm-hmm. you know, you can really go to town with individual pioneer tools, which is something you tend to sort of, everything gets sort of, to an extent, sort of, excuse the pun, brushed over on 35th scale, <laughs> where you can really, really sort of take the time on, on the 16th scale and, and it, you know, pays dividends. Pioneer tools for armor modelers are like ordnance for aircraft modelers. It's that thing left at the end of the build that you really don't want to do by the time you get there. Like, oh, bloody hell, I've got to finish them before I can finish them off. Yeah, stowage is the same. Yeah, that can that can be often like a, an afterthought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but you don't have to spend a shit ton of time gluing it together and dealing with the seam that runs right down the middle of the drop tank. So... Yeah, no, just a seam that runs right down the middle of the shovel or right down the side of the the crowbar. Yeah, you just scrape it off. You just scrape it off. Not a big deal. I think. What about the two-part barrel? Oh god, yeah. Nice flat top. Thankfully, that's not not as bad as aircraft models. But but no, I'm just saying that's (laughs) that's part of the tank. That's part of the tank. That's not the pioneer tools or the stowage or all the extra stuff. You know. Yeah, a lot of the companies now. Chuck in aluminium, aluminium yeah, turn, turn yeah. gun barrels, which uh, you know I'll always go for that option just for pure laziness. Um, but with you're saying about aircraft with ordnance, obviously having been a weapons technician in the air force, um, it's one of my pet hates is when you, you see 
weapons that are the wrong colors you know they've got the wrong um hazard bands around them you know if, if they've got the live warheads yellow and the live rocket motors brown you know and people have got the wrong combination of these hazard bands or or they've painted them in like the the um oxford blue which would have been uh you can't fly with those weapons they're they're drill tra- you know the the training rounds just for the mm. like, load crews to to practice with um and it's just that you know, i know it's like insider information but it's, as soon as i look at an aircraft and you know i think all modelers we've all got some little pet peeve or you know it's our little special interest and you look and as soon as your alarm bells get triggered by something and it it can just make me want to walk on by and not bother carrying on looking at the rest of that model you know when you, you see those little things that just like no don't like that <laughs> it gives me a chuckle because the um afv club churchill gun carrier and the meng a39 i think it is tortoise both had the same mistake which is they got the red triangle on the front which was fitted to vehicles that weren't armored they were just right, covered yeah. in mild steel for trials vehicles yeah and um people like weather them up like they're in combat and it's like wow that's a lucky tank because if anything hit it it'd be dead but, yeah, so you must be the same when you see like inert practice bombs on planes <laughs> loaded up for missions and stuff that's right yeah yeah that's right yeah got <laughs> practice colored missiles and bombs and you think yeah good luck doing any damage with that then, you know? <laughs> yeah. and it's also as well it's like things like um you know where they've got all the weapons on and there's no remove before flight flags things like sidewinders mm. or or the yellow noddy caps and the, the, the noddy caps are only take a, taken off at final alarm in it basically as the jet's about to roll down the runway, you know, so, you, so really you, you never see the seeker heads until the, you know, the jets crewed engines running and they're about to depart, you know, so, but again, it's something we talked about, you know, modelers copy other modelers and don't often mm-hmm. look at the real reference or, you know, well, it certainly made me think I'm going to double check all my coloured bands on my own <laughs> in the future. <laughs> and all this information is readily available on the internet. Well, I mean, it is great for research. Just years and years ago, having to dig through books and, you know, hopefully cobble together enough information to do the build that you want to do justice. That's a thing of the past. Yeah, definitely. Well, like we always say, people assume they know what something looks like instead of going and looking at it. And with the internet, there's no excuse not to go and look at it. I think I think a lot of it is actually knowing how to type it into a search engine as to what to look mm-hmm. for. That can be one of the biggest sort of you know barriers against getting the you know references you really need. Sorry, Spud, we run out of time. No, that's fine. <laughs> it happens all the time. It's just fun, and it's it's just fun, and we yeah, time flies. Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Spud. Uh, it's been well been a while since we've actually gotten a chance to speak we messaged back and forth a little bit but it was good fun at world model expo so i know that chris and i really appreciate you coming on um so we could catch up and i know will had a real good time meeting you um yeah this was really cool i mean i knew your work a little bit but i just you know didn't know that much about you so to find out that you're a fellow dirt bike guy is cool i can't believe i never put that together before because i knew that (laughs) (laughs) it's been a real pleasure thank you yeah, it's great fun talking shop with you, Spud. Thanks, Spud. <laughs> right, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.
And don't forget, the Sprue Cutters Union is just one of a number of superb scale modelling podcasts. There are too many to list, but go to modelpodcasts.com to find a full list of all these great shows. Hey guys, it's Chris here talking about Inside the Armour Publications. Great news, Volume 2 of Models for Ukraine is out for pre-order now. The first book raised over £19,000 for the Disasters Emergency Committee Ukraine Appeal. And we hope this book will raise more than 22000 to add to that total. The book features a number of fantastic artists, including Alex Clark, Calvin Tan, Emilien Diablo, Fanch Lubin, Felipe Costa Ramirez, Harvey Lowe, Ian Baraclough, Jean-Bernard André, John Colasante, Jose Brito, Katerina Derbalova, Paolo Portoese, René van der Hart, Robert Blocker, Sam Dwyer and many more. If you'd like to pre-order the book, I suggest you do it as soon as possible because it's already selling very fast. Just go to insidethearmor.com where you can pre-order your book and where you can also order any of our fantastic publications on paper or in ebook formats. All right, folks, thank you so much for sticking with us, and we hope you enjoyed that interview with Spud and our random conversation beforehand. Um, this is going <laughs> to wrap up our 35th episode. I'm I am particularly proud. Not not I don't know why, but 35 just seems like hell. That's a, that's a pretty good accomplishment. It so, is good. We're only 115 yeah. short of matching those guys over at, on the bench. Right. So, Dave, Julie, you guys stop now. And let us let catch, us catch up. up. Take a break. For, take a break for about four years. Okay, did you just do that? Great, thanks. Okay, okay thanks. Bye. <laughs> you know what? I, I want to mention something kind of quickly. Just wrapping up. Um, Will had a really interesting post on the Scale Model Critique Group about uh, wow moments. Wasn't that it, Will? Like, th- like just. Oh, the thing that I posted about uh, game changers, yeah, like game tools changers. or techniques or whatever that yeah, really yeah, yeah, like yeah. were difference makers for you in your mm. model making journey. You noticed that? that. So, yeah, I participated in it. I, you I posted. Did. Yeah, he you didn't did. notice that. <laughs> I did. He notice did. That. He, he, he did threw notice. some likes on the, and the I did. stuff that I put I did. I'm always stoked because Tracy doesn't say a lot, but when he says it, it's worth listening to. Um, and it's also it was also about the the masking. Uh, liquid mask is one of the things which I of course totally made my day yeah absolutely uh but it's one of the things when i was listening to small subjects they did a really good uh, uh show with no guests just them talking about tools which i really enjoyed and uh, the yep. liquid masking was one of the things i i'd taken those pictures to to throw on their facebook page and just time got away from me so i was really pleased that uh that barry saw that as well um so if you get a chance, go to, head to Scale Models Critique Group and and look up that post. There's, man, I want to say, well over 200 comments on that one. It, yeah, it was it was it, it was a legit, really good good post. And there's lots better. of lots of tips and tricks in there. Mm-hmm. Nice to see a post that isn't a dumpster fire get over 100 comments. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> usually it's the other kind of post. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And speaking of, of talking a lot about tools, we spent the whole first uh, like hour and a half of this one talking about tools of a different kind. Yeah, S- say, yeah, send us your thoughts, you know, on the rivet counter thing. Because hey, look, I mean, maybe we maybe we are oversensitive about it. I don't know. This is all our point of view. This is our philosophy. 
I'm going to stick to it, but we want to hear your views out there in listener land as well. So fire up the email machine. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'd also like to just say, please go along and listen to the latest on the bench where they look back over their first 150 episodes. Oh, and they I do know their where this is episodes. going. I know they where their, this uh, is going. <laughs> top 10 episodes by downloads. Mm-hmm. And one of my episodes made it in there. And uh, Wills didn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that coming from <laughs> three feet away. From across the seas. <laughs> Oh my god, this episode's been all over the map, like Timothy Leary on a moped. Timothy O'Leary? <laughs> the actor. <Yeah. laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Some of our best work, though. Somewhere in there. What's what's next? What's happening on our next episode? We have, we're going to do something a little different with the format next time. We have three fantastic model makers that we're going to interview in a very focused fashion. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like the opposite yeah, right. of this. Dif- right. Different from the previous 35 episodes uh, for about half an hour each about a project that they recently finished. That's gotten a lot of attention because it's just so fantastic. And those three are Mr. David Parker, we're going to talk about his 116 scale Panzer IV, seven years in the making. Yep. We're going to talk about him about that one. We're going to talk to John Chung about his recently completed Hornet that's just mind bending. And we're going to talk to Shane Doak because he recently completed an F4 that really is just gorgeous. And and frankly, we should have had Shane on long before now. Yeah, he's an enthusiastic guy. He's a friend of the podcast. He's a he's a he's just a friend, and uh, it'll be fun to have him on. And he and I'll try not to talk about dirt bikes for thirty minutes. We're gonna be focused. I'll, you can talk all you want. I'll just edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're hoping for is to get these guys on and and have them talk about uh, what they, you know, how they feel about the project on the on the ass end of it, having completed it what they learned from it, what they would do differently if they would ever do a project like that again. Just, but just, you know, some recognition and some conversation around these, these, uh, these projects that, that they've been nice enough to, to take us along on the ride for, you know, like they, yeah. these the guys post, have got the post game, post game interview, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. These guys documented their progress like all along the way. So we were really there, all of us there for the journey. So be nice to talk to them about it. And as we had David and John on before talking about those projects in amongst their other parts of their interview, it's nice to sort of round that off to come back to something we spoke to them about before. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. Uh, thanks for tuning into this one. Uh, if you're still listening to us after all this bullshit, we got a good one coming up next week. Not next week. Next- Jesus, not three in three weeks. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great one coming up in two weeks. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. So I'm going to sign off. Adios, bitches. All right. Good stuff. See ya. Auf Wiedersehen. Ja. Schnell, mach schnell.